This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. So welcome, everyone. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Darren Poli. I'm the Interim Director of the Library here at Valby. And I uh, want to thank all of our uh, winners uh, for coming today and presenting to, to us. Uh, if you're not aware of this, uh, this whole week has been dedicated to uh, recognizing outstanding research and scholarship on campus. And so this particular event, the Falvey Scholars Award, is uh, Falvey Library's contribution to that uh, whole week of recognition. But in addition to that, this is, I believe, the 11th or 12th year that we've actually done this. So this is a long-standing tradition for Falvey Library to honor outstanding undergraduate research. And so we're really pleased to have our presenters today. So um, we're going to begin with uh, Robert McGrain. I'm sorry? McGrain. McGrain. I'm sorry. Robert McGrain uh, from engineering. Um, so hi everyone, I'm Ron McGrain and my research is Kaizen Thin Films for Post-Surgical Drug Delivery. And before I start, I just want to have a couple thank yous for uh, my advisor, Dr. Kamoli, who um, I don't think was able to make it today, um, to Dr. Vito Ponzi, who's one of the co-authors of my research and developed the, the initial method of making our films, um, Colleen Clark, who's done all of my cell culture, which has been very nice, um, and to Dr. Jared Paul and Walter Boyko for um, their uh, NMR chemical donations and their expertise, as well as Falvey. Um, you know, I had a, a very easy time finding all my research. They had a very nice journal selection. Um, I didn't even have to ask them to, to buy an article, which was very nice. Um, so just some, some intro uh, just to, to the background of the inspiration of my project. Um, worldwide, every year, roughly 234 million people undergo surgery, and roughly 51 million of those are Americans. Um, and so that is a, a very large tax on the, on, on the uh, health system. Um, and one of the, the reasons why surgery is such a problem is you have things such as uh, post-surgical pain, which can be very difficult to treat. And um, when it's not properly treated, you have things such as insomnia, poor wound healing, hypertension, tachycardia, and even things like pneumonia. Um, so it's, it's really important for both the patient and the doctor to get a good control of that. And then even outside of that, you have things like painkiller addiction, which if you watch the news, um, you know, it's becoming a, a bigger and bigger problem with things like Oxycontin. So our idea was to develop a method of uh, creating a, a drug release that was localized and controlled so you can use less drug overall and you have lessened side effects throughout the body. And uh, basically, when you have surgery, or in this case, it's just showing an example of uh, an external wound, but you'll have uh, cell death and um, it's oftentimes with pathogens, as in this case. Um, what happens is when the cells get around that area, it gets stressed and start to die, um, signals are sent out into the bloodstream here, and they will pull in white blood cells, which are the, the blue cells and the purple ones respectively, and they'll come in and they will um, eat the dying cells and the pathogens. And what causes the pain from inflammation is when those white blood cells come in, that, that's what causes the swelling. Um, now, this is good. This is a healthy response. It means your, your body's immune system is working. It means you're healing. That's great. Um, the problem is, is when your body has too much inflammation and, or if 
um, it's sort of like an off and on switch. If that switch stays on for too long, you'll have additional cells which are perfectly healthy that start dying, and that's no good, obviously. So how do cells die? There are two main ways that cells will die. There's necrosis and apoptosis. Apoptosis is, is a more of a programmed kind of cell death, um, and in that case, what will happen is the cell will, will bud into little small packages, which are small enough for your white blood cells to eat. And um, that has, there are many different ways um, why that will happen. Um, there's also necrosis, which is kind of the opposite. And um, the cell literally will just explode and just throw out all of its contents, which if it has something like a pathogen, makes it easier for the white blood cells to actually um, scoop up as fast as possible before the cell starts producing more and becomes more of a problem. Um, so the material we decided to use um, was chitosan, which, or it is also chitin. Um, it's a polysaccharide, which is just a bunch of sugars that are linked together. Um, it's abundant and it's natural. Um, you can find it in shrimp, fungi, and insects. Most often it's chitin. Um, chemical companies will uh, process it into chitosan, though. Um, the main difference between the chitosan and the, the chitin are um, that chitosan is deacetylated and chitin is acetylated. And um, just for people who don't know, so that's, a, that's an amine group right there. And the difference, this is chitosan, and this is chitin. That acetyl group is just that little branch thing on the bottom there. Um, and it's not, it doesn't have to be all one or the other. There's um, generally a, a percentage of each. And that is one of the most important properties of the material itself. And you need to control for that. Regardless, though, chitosan is uh, biocompatible and biodegradable, which is really nice for when you're having a bio inspired kind of project like this. And it can be used in things like tissue engineering um, and wastewater treatment, which is what Dr. Punzi typically uses it for, or drug delivery like we use it for. Um, so the idea was to basically take a, a gel of chitosan and let it dry and harden into a film. And that gel you can load with a drug. Um, so when you put these films in the body, you can cut them into whatever shape you like put it over the wound, and you have a localized and controlled drug release. And because it degrades, you don't have to go back in and remove it and have a second surgery, because that second surgery will cause more inflammation and more pain. Um, and hypothetically, you can use this for any kind of a chemical or a drug that can diffuse. So anti-inflammatories, localized painkillers, and, and, and even chemo. Um, it just got to you know, test it and see how the release properties are. Um, so we had two main goals with this project, and uh, we had three tools really at, at our disposal. It's um, using the, changing the deacetylation of the chitosan, changing the neutralization time, and changing the cross-linking time. And I'll explain what those do in a little bit, but they control the degradation and the drug release. Um, and we also want to use as safe and as simple a chemistry as possible, because once we start using harsh chemicals, you have to make sure that you get rid of them before you put these films in the body, or else the cells will react to it, they will start to die, and then you're back at square one again. That's not any good. Um, so the method itself is actually surprisingly simple. Um, you take chitosan powder, water, and acetic acid, and you mix it together, and you get a, a, a sloppy mix of, of a gel. And you'll heat it, and you stir it over six days, because it takes a while for the stuff to go into the solution. And if you want to add drug, you just add it about one to two hours before you pour it. And then you pour it into a large glass dish, the water evaporates off, and it dries, and you have this hard film. And again, you can just cut it whatever shape you like. And um, there are two steps after that you have to take. Once you have these films, you have to neutralize them, and then you have to cross-link them. 
you first neutralize them because you're making these with acetic acid, and cells in the body do not react well to changes in pH. So um, you need to, to basically remove the acid, and even though it's a, it's a very weak acid. And also, uh, the most important thing is that it will remove the positive charge along the, the backbone. As you can see, it's kind of just, it's linked um, along, the, sorry, along the chitosan. And those positive charges will sort of push the, the backbones apart, which you want them close together because the next step, you're going to cross-link them with a chemical, which is basically when you have these, these two backbones, it's basically a, like, like a band that will go between them to make it more durable so you can't pull it apart. And in this case, we used a, a, just a natural molecule that's non-toxic called genepin. Um, and again, that just increases the durability. And because you're increasing the durability, you're going to um, slow the drug release and control it. And so here are just some uh, photos of the films. They're, they're very uh, unassuming. Um, so this one on the left here, it's just a, a dry film that hasn't had anything done to it yet. And you see it, it's, it's um, rather opaque, it's brittle, um, and it's very thin. Um, and this one has just been, it's been cross-linked and neutralized, but it also had been um, degrading in uh, phosphate-buffered saline, which is just a solution that has salt concentrations. It's very similar to what you'll find in the human body, which is something that we uh, had to use in all of our tests. Um, and in this instance here, you can see um, it's it was just taken out of the PBS, so it's still very swollen. It hasn't dried out at all. Um, and you see uh, it's, 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 it's more translucent. It's, it's holding a lot of water, and it's a lot thicker. Um, so that's just um, because it, it, it'll basically go back to like a gel state almost. Um, and here is just how we, um, in our studies, we changed the neutralization time, the cross-linking time, as a, as a way to see how we can control um, the, the degradation and the drug release. So in the degradation study, like I said, um, we put them in phosphate-buffered saline, we put them at, at normal human body temperature, and we took these films and we weighed them over 12 days. So overall, at the end of the study, we had 7 to 17 weight percent loss. And over the first four days, we had uh, a slight swelling of the film and then the degradation <coughs> happening afterwards, which is normal, we expected that. Um, we found that the groups that had more neutralization were more durable, which could be just because we're bringing the backbones closer together, we're getting more efficiency out of our cross-linking. Um, we also found that this was a very unexpected result, that our film that just had extra cross-linking was our fastest degrading film. Um, so you figure even just if it's not efficient, you have more cross-linking, it should be slightly better than the film that had the same amount of neutralization and less cross-linking. Uh, so we weren't sure what was going on with that, so we put that to the side for the time being. Um, and finally, we found that the group with the largest treatment time was the most durable films that we had. Um, and I should note, though, that this was a, a very short-term study. Obviously, it was only 12 days. Um, but we did do a long-term study where we just want to see at what point do we see complete structural loss. And we actually didn't find any, which is a problem because you want these things to degrade in the body. But the thing was, we looked back at the literature, and we think we found a very easy fix for this. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, so then afterwards, we did a drug release study with the three groups that we brought over. And we just <coughs> expected, you know, more durable film has a slower release. And that basically is just because as the film degrades, you're going to expose more surface area of the film to the liquid itself, which makes it easier for the drug to go out into the liquid. So if you don't have the degradation, it's, there's more resistance for the drug to actually diffuse out. 
Um, so anyway, again, we put in a phosphate buffered saline, and the drug we used was a um, inhibitor of a pathway in the cell that has been known um, has been implicated in, in cell apoptosis, um, and there's also an anti-inflammatory response with that. Um, and so what we noted is we had a limited overall drug release, and we basically believe that's a result of the lack of degradation. But again, we think there's a very easy fix to that. Um, we also had a controlled burst phase over the first one to three days, and then afterwards we had a linear controlled release, and that is exactly what we want. Because we figure after a surgery, when you're having uh, uh, pain, it's going to be at its worst the first couple of days after, and then the pain starts to tail off. So you want more drug in the first couple of days, and then you want less drug as uh, time moves on. Uh, we also found um, in, in this instance that um, there was no real trend between any kind of treatment time and the overall drug release. And that could just be because it's not degrading really too fast. And there's probably some diffusion effects that we have to um, look at, at on their own. So our three main conclusions from this is that, again, because of that release profile that we saw with the, the quick first phase, but it was controlled, and then a controlled release afterwards, that this is actually good material for, for applications such as uh, anti-inflammatories and, and painkillers. And uh, one of the things that we want to do is we want to increase the degradation of the films so we can obviously make it degrade faster in the body and have it release drug a little bit faster and more efficiently. You want these films to release all the drug that's in them or else you're basically bringing back the need to you know, go back to systemic you know, injections of painkillers and whatnot. Um, so as far as future studies that we're going to do, um, what's currently underway is we're going to try and make a different kytosan. Um, the kytosan we initially used was at 88% deacetylation, and that's just one of the more commercially available ones. And then, so what we want to do is we can use one that's closer to 50 to 60%, which um, literature has shown that that's actually the most soluble kind of kytosans that you can have. Um, and if we fear, we start at that point, and we can make it more durable if we need to afterwards. And the, it's, a, it's a very easy method to do. It's basically we're doing the step that you're, um, we're doing the step that, you know, when your chemical company makes into kytosan, you don't have to do. It's basically just taking chitin and boiling it in sodium hydroxide, and it will just chop off these acetyl groups. And again, um, it's very, all we have to do is to make sure of, to make sure that we're being safe with it, is just making sure we're washing, we're washing out all the sodium hydroxide afterwards. Um, then we also want to test with uh, lysozyme in our, uh, in our solutions, um, as that is the most, uh, the enzyme in the body that will be the primary degrader of these films. And we also want to try using different drugs. Um, the drug that we used was a very small molecule, um, and um, there are obviously many different kinds of treatments out there, including uh, protein drugs, which are a much larger kind of molecule. There may be different release uh, kinetics to that. And we also want to get a better understanding of how to optimize the neutralization and cross-linking of the films and understanding how each of those interact with one another. And uh, there we have all my, uh, my references. Um, and I thank you all for listening. And if you guys have any questions, I'd be glad to answer them. Um, my name is Linda Hauk, and I'm really honored to introduce Olivia Ferguson today. Um, this year, with the paper that she's presented, it's clear that Olivia's made the transition from a student to being a scholar. Um, she's passionate about understanding how um, our past informs our current conditions, um, 
And Villanovans often like to talk about Veritas or, or the search for truth. And Olivia embraced the, the search for truth by using narrative, quantitative, and analytical techniques um, in her study. But I'll leave that um, to her talk. I suspect that um, Olivia's ambition is to use her understanding to help shape caring public policies. And I'm confident, given her enthusiasm and persistence, she'll realize that ambition and will all benefit from it in the future. Olivia's um, faculty mem member, uh, Dr. Peter Zaleski, couldn't be here today, but I'm sure he'd agree. In nominating Olivia, he remarked on Olivia's dogged persistence in compiling a usable data set, her independence, and balanced openness to guidance. On a personal note, um, I just played enjoyed working with Olivia. Um, whether we talked on the phone, we met in my office, or we ran e into each other at the pool where she guarded while I swam. Um, it was no mistaking that she's a passionate, engaged young woman, and she's a happy and bubbly personality. So um, I'm sure she's going to have wonderful success um, after graduation. Olivia. Thank you so much for the introduction. That was really sweet. <laughs> um, yeah, this project has actually taken me all year, so it's, it's been a big project, and I've worked with Linda Hope uh, all year in her office trying to find the right data sets, and it's been, been a big challenge, and so I feel like this is really what's defined my senior year, so thank you very much. Um, so my paper looks at the um, metropolitan manufacturing decline from 1980 to 2005 um, and the effects on residents in those areas. Um, so from 1980 to 2005, we've seen a big industrial decline um, in metropolitan areas across the United States. Um, and what I was really interested in was how the decline has affected uh, the standard of living in those areas. Um, really the first challenge I came across in this paper was deciding how to define, how to de how to define standard of living. Um, there's no real economic measurement for it, uh, no definitive one at least. Um, so I chose multiple measurements to do so, uh, measurements that indicated the well-being of an area and also measurements that I knew that there was substantial information from 1980 to 2005 um, to gather. Um, so these variables ended up being income per capita, per the percentage of education attainment of high school diploma or more, uh, the percentage of population below the poverty line, and population. Um, just a comment on population. Uh, population is not considered sort of a definitive economic variable. Um, I took it in and, and incorporated it into my paper because it's more of um, a measurement of health of the area. Um, looking at population from 1980 to 2005-2010, um, whether the population has grown, whether it has declined, really tells you how healthy that city is. You know, if people are moving to this area, um, it says that this area is healthy, this area has opportunities, this area has jobs, um, and obviously the opposite if there is a decline. Um, yeah, it really just answers the question, do people want to live here? So just a little background. This is a very sort of typical picture of Detroit. Um, and it, Detroit is likely one of the most famous examples of urban decay in the United States. Um, Famous for the auto industry, uh, the city was really at its peak in 1950 uh, with a population of 1.8 million people. Um, nowadays, it's got thousands of empty homes, empty you know, apartment buildings, commercial buildings throughout the city. Sort of, again, that is the typical Detroit picture if you look on Google. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, 
And really what happened here was the high unemployment rates from the auto industry pushed the middle class out of the city into the suburbs, um, which is known as the white flight phenomenon. Um, and the city was left with a reduced tax base, uh, depressed property values, and a very high crime rate. Um, you know, as a comparison, in, in 2010, the, city had, the city's population had declined by about 60%. Um, this is not an uncommon story. This is a little, little more personal. I ended up doing a uh, service trip to Camden, New Jersey last uh, October with Villanova. Um, I've grown up in D.C. my whole life. And I've, I've seen rough parts of the cities, but I have never seen um, such distresses in Camden. You know, um, the things you see in the newspapers are very re real. You know, it's a lot of empty row houses. Um, it's high crime rates. It's, a, you know, a huge drug market. And it went from being this very um, vibrant industrial city that had uh, a record company, uh, shipbuilding industry, and a Campbell Soup factory, of course. Um, to being this place that's known for its violence, that's known for uh, political, political corruption and very unlivable circumstances. Um, and actually from a history thesis, um, I looked at uh, Campbell Soup Factory's production choices, uh, production decisions, and well, which culminated in its decision to leave Camden um, and the effects on uh, the residents. So that was sort of more of a case study approach to what I did this time. Um, making it a little more local, we have Chester, which is just down the street, um, and Chester was actually a shipbuilding city. Um, it's been making uh, sort of steps towards coming back, uh, I believe, with a waterfront project. Um, but again, it is another site of industrial decline, and it's right down the street from us, so if you want to go look, it's right there. Um, so obviously, uh, industrial decline is evident throughout the United States. Um, and a lot of these cities are now recognized for their urban decay. Um, so these are the three main sources um, that really influenced my, my paper besides the uh, sources where I got my actual data. Um, so Carolyn Perucci's Plant Closings, International Contacts and Social Costs, written in 1988. It's a case study approach to the effects of a major factory closing in an area where the residents were primarily dependent on those jobs. Um, in her work, her, her main fo focus was on social costs rather than economic measurements. Uh, for example, she found greater levels of depression, anxiety, alcoholism, uh, increased rates of violence, um, all of which really stemmed from this overall loss of a feeling over, of control over one's life. Um, interestingly, she actually found that men experienced um, this at a, to a greater extent because men tended to uh, associate um, employment and their ability to, pro to provide for their family more with uh, self-worth. Um, these social costs highlight in Perucci's work uh, really provided a background for me. Um, they explained really how the individuals in the 114, my 114 metropolitan areas uh, may have felt following the widespread job loss and uh, gave a little background um, or a little context for the social unrest that followed. Similar to Perucci's work, um, Ann Stevens' 1977 journal article, Effects of Job Displacement, the Importance of Multiple Job Losses, um, looks at the effects, of, the effects on the community after a widespread job loss. Um, but unlike Perucci, uh, Stevens looks at the economic costs of 
the, yeah, the economic costs rather than the social costs of widespread job loss. Um, this includes a reduced tax base, uh, disventures in local businesses, um, and a higher dependence on, on uh, state, uh, state support uh, when there is you know, less to go around at the time. So finally, um, the consequences of metropolitan manufacturing decline, testing conventional wisdom by Alec Friedhoff, Howard Wheel, and uh, Howard Wallman, published in 2010 by the Brookings Institute, um, was a huge source for me. Uh, a huge challenge uh, in this paper was actually finding a source that could become um, the backbone for my paper. Um, and it, it took a long time. I'm sure you remember trying to find um, just one good heavy economic source for this. Um, and this paper really became that. Um, Friedhoff's, uh, Friedhoff's uh, paper uh, took 114 metropolitan areas um, that as of 1980 had um, the highest concentrations of manufacturing jobs um, and calculated the percentages of manufacturing jobs or the percentage changes in manufacturing jobs and non-manufacturing jobs from 1980 to 2005. So obviously that's where I got sort of the backbone for my paper, those, those manufacturing and non-manufacturing job changes. Um, unlike my paper, this paper really looked at what needs to be done when those, um, those job losses take place and, place and how um, these areas can sort of recover and what jobs need to come in after um, there's an, an, an industrial decline. So well, this looked at you know what needs to be done after after there's a decline. Um, my paper looked at sort of more of the uh, social costs of the declines itself. Um, the paper concluded that really what makes all the difference in how a metro area recovers from an economic downturn is the type of employment that comes into the area. Um, so for for my research, my independent variables. This is an econometric study. Um, for which I made four separate regressions. Um, my independent variables were the percentage change in manufacturing jobs and the percentage change in non-manufacturing jobs. And my control variable uh, for, for all four of them was the population in 1980. Uh, my dependent variables, I generated these dependent variables uh, from raw data that I took from 1980 until uh, 2010, 2005, depending on you know how late I could get the data, um, and they became uh, per the percentage change in population, the change in percentage of population below the poverty line, percentage change in personal income per capita, and the change in percentage of population with high school diploma or above. So that uh, later becomes these the change pop change poverty, change income, and change education. So table one uh, depicts descriptive. Ooh, sorry. The table one de uh, depicts descriptive statistics for the entire data sample. Uh, there are 91 observations taken from the original 114, um, with the exception of the change in income, which came up with 90. Um, on average, manufacturing jobs experienced an overall decline um, between 1980 and 2005, and non-manufacturing jobs with a mean of 52. Point 14 uh, produce an overall increase uh, in these areas. Uh, the change in population had a mean growth of 16.43 per million. However, the range of data is so wide, um, which you can see with the standard, standard deviation, um, that 
this may not actually reflect the, the trend in, in a lot of areas. Um, the change in poverty produced a mean growth of 7.1%, for which, again, we see the standard deviation is, is very small, and that suggests it's a very close indicator of the actual trend. Um, the change in income has a positive mean indicating overall growth in income per capita in these areas. Um, however, similar to population, um, there's a very wide standard deviation. So while many cities may have experienced a huge growth, others may have experienced very little or even none at all. Um, finally, change in education produced a positive mean um, during an overall increase, which is uh, just following the general, general trend that was happening in the country at, at the time. Um, these are my four regressions. Uh, for the perf so I ran four separate time series linear regressions um, and each looked at the correlation between the dependent variable, which is on the left, and the independent variable and control variable, which is on the right. So this is uh, these are all four regressions summarized in a nice tidy table so you don't have to go through four slides for them. Um, so column one uh, shows that shows the regression between the change in manufacturing jobs, change in non-manufacturing jobs, population 1980, and change in income. So we see that there's a positive correlation between the change in manufacturing jobs and change in income. Um, however, there is a higher statistical significance between the change in non-manufacturing jobs and the change in income, which is uh, indicated by those three stars there. Um, so this suggests that as non-manufacturing jobs in metropolitan areas increase, so does the income per capita. Column two uh, indicates the change in poverty, um, regression, excuse me. Um, so the coefficient produced here is negative 0.125. Um, that has a p-value of less than 0.5, so um, again, that shows very strong significance. Um, as of, this basically says that as manufacturing jobs decrease, there is an increase in the percentage of families that um, are living below the poverty line. Um, and here, here we see that non-manufacturing jobs really has no significant influence on, on the change in poverty rates. Column three shows the change in education. Um, so the coefficient produced here is 0 0.109, um, indicating a strong positive relationship between manufacturing jobs and the, present and the percentage of educational attainment. And column four uh, shows the change in population. Um, which is more statistically significant with the change in non-manufacturing jobs, again, indicated by those three stars. Oh, and it has a positive relationship. So, um, like I said, uh, with the regressions, the percentage change in income and the percentage change in population um, were both significantly linked to the percentage change in non-manufacturing jobs. Uh, and it suggests that an increase in non-manufacturing jobs is linked to an increase in income per capita, as well as that a non, not as non-manufacturing jobs in a city increases, the population of the city also increases. Um, and like, again, like I said, these two uh, variables were not significantly linked to manufacturing jobs. Um, as my paper did focus on manufacturing, um, I paid a little more attention to the manufacturing side of things rather than the non-manufacturing side. Um, so regarding manufacturing jobs, post both the change in poverty rates and the change in education rates are significantly linked. Um, regarding education, 
there's a positive relationship between the two. Uh, in this case, as manufacturing jobs declined, uh, the, the rates of educational attainment um, also declined. So my advisors and I, a big thing with this is while a lot of this is correlation, we need to be able to theorize, you know, why, why is this perhaps happening? Um, one of the things that uh, Dasha Zaleski and Dasha Kilby and I came up with was uh, that we could argue that the loss of manufacturing jobs uh, depleted incentive for students to finish high school. Um, in that the manufacturing jobs that paid well and also de demanded a high school diploma, as many of them did, suddenly disappeared. Um, furthermore, the emergence, the emergence of unskilled non-manufacturing jobs um, that do not require a high school diploma, so for example, flipping burgers, um, may encourage students to forego their education um, if that is the employment you know, that they're uh, originally expecting they're going to obtain. Um, so there's also an inverse relationship between the change in poverty rates and the change in manufacturing jobs. Um, as the percentage of manufacturing jobs in an area decrease, the percentage of families below the poverty line increases. Uh, so again, another theory behind this. Um, the loss of manufacturing jobs likely takes away uh, a category of employment that um, would be filled by residents with lower skills. Um, so residents then from this employment group would try and seek, um, or excuse me, residents from this employment group would be unable to obtain employment opportunities that are non-manufacturing and require higher skill sets. Um, so they would either remain unemployed or settle for um, unskilled jobs that really do pay less. So interestingly, my overall results um, point to an idea that the original Friedhoff uh, Brookings article, that is originally in the original Friedhoff Brookings article, um, that the health of a metropolitan area following an industrial decline is dependent on the types of employment that emerge afterwards. So while the decline in manufacturing jobs would cause a decline in education rates, an increase in poverty rates, the moving in of new, new non-manufacturing opportunities may attract more individuals to the city as well as increase the overall income of residents. Um, Detroit, Camden, and Chester, these are all cities that were unable to, to attract new, new uh, or excuse me, alternative job opportunities after the decline. Um, this is likely due to, you know, uh, the social unrest that was very present in those areas. Um, however, if you look at Pittsburgh, um, it's a city that was known for its steel industry, uh, with, it now has, I believe, a huge healthcare industry. Um, and when that really moved in, that sort of pulled it out of that economic distress and helped it bring it, you know, bring it back to where it needed to be. And these are all the sources that I can thank the library for. <laughs> Great, thank you so much. So um, I am thrilled to be here to um, introduce Aurora, Aurora Vandewark, who is um, a student who I got to know in a lot of different ways over the last few years. Um, Aurora is from Kirkland, Washington. She has a passionate interest in maternal child health. And my relationship with Aurora began when she knocked on my door the, in her sophomore year and said, Dr. Smeltzer said you could help me do research. And so a relationship was begun at that point. 
I worked with Aurora when she received her um, VORF, the um, Villanova Undergraduate Research Fellowship, that summer. We did some, she did some research, an independent research study looking at breastfeeding knowledge and attitudes. She has published that work and presented it at the Eastern Nursing Research uh, Society Conference and has done a fantastic job with that. This work that she'll present today is actually a continuation of her interest in maternal child health, but was a separate project that she undertook. And it is the evidence-based practices to reduce psycho psychosocial distress among NICU parents. Okay. Cool. Hi everyone, thank you so much for having me. Um, as Dr. Kelly said, the title of my presentation is Evidence-Based Practices to Reduce Psychosocial Distress Among Parents of Neonatal Intensive Care Unit Patients. And so I just wanted to start off by uh, going over some definitions, because I know not everyone ha is necessarily familiar with this portion of the medical field. Um, so the Neonatal Intensive Care Unit, which I've abbreviated as NICU throughout my slides, um, is the hospital unit that focuses on the treatment of critically ill infants after delivery. And evidence-based practices, which you'll see as EBP, um, is a philosophy that advocates for practice to be based upon research instead of on tradition or other rationales. And it's a really big movement in healthcare. And family-centered care is something that's going to come up a lot as well. It's abbreviated as FCC. And it's a philosophy of care that believes that the inclusion of family members is vital for the holistic treatment of the patient, which in this case is the infant. And then psychosocial distress I'm using is a very broad term for any kind of stress or emotional strain that's experienced by an individual. And I'm also looking at family as in a very comprehensive manner. A lot of the studies that I looked at for my research um, were focused on parents, but I intend the word family to include anything that you can imagine, um, given the diversity that's out there. So my investigative questions for this study, were, or for my thesis, were what are the safest and most efficacious evidence-based practices that NICU nursing staff can use to reduce the family unit psychosocial distress, and whether these are in place around the country right now, currently. I just wanted to bring up some of my warrants and qualifications when I was looking into this. Uh, to give you all some more background. It is part of the duty of the healthcare professional to reduce anxiety and stress when possible, and so I was looking at this as a component of nurses being advocates for their patients, even though in this case the patient is the infant uh, and not necessarily the parents in traditional thought processes, but um, because the care of the parent is so important for the care of the infant, they're so intertwined, uh, I wanted to do this study to see the impact, or do this research to see the possibility for the health of the parents to impact. Um, this is just a picture of what a typical NICU may look like, in case any of you have not seen one. And as you can see, there are a lot of different wires, there's a lot of different tubes, many different machines. All of these machines make sound, um, and the babies are also enclosed. And so this is just it can be a very stressful and intimidating situation to walk into. Uh, the more unprepared the parents are for the eventuality of them ending up in the NICU, the worse it tends to be, according to the research. 
but I just wanted to give everyone a clear picture of what they look like. And so this research is important because the NICU environment is not helpful for parent-child bonding. And the birth experience is entirely different from what the stereotypical, you know, easy, traditional birth would be. And because not only do the parents cope with what is already a huge difference uh, in having a child now, but they have a critically ill child and they experience this lack of access that causes disenfranchisement and isolation, which makes them a lot more likely to have symptoms of depression and actually post-traumatic stress disorder as well, um, which I didn't know prior to going into this. And so, as I'm sure you are all aware, parents' behaviors have long-term outcomes for their children. Um, this is really important to be looking at. So I started with a review of the literature I have my search terms in the databases up there. I'm a French minor, and so I was able to actually look at some French language studies as well, which were really interesting and added some diversity to this. And so I, when I um, did my search, I came up with articles that I was going to be looking at, and I organized them into different categories and analyzed them thematically to see what things were coming up in the research that we could really apply to create actual guidelines or practices that NICUs could implement in order to include parents more in their pa patient's care. And I also assessed them for levels of evidence using a method devised by Melnick and Final Overholt. Um, and so what it is, is it's a, an assessment of the scientific rigor of studies, and it's done in a lot of different ways. Um, but this one starts with the highest level of evidence being a systematic review or meta-analysis and going all the way down um, to an expert opinion or consensus at level seven. So the highest is a level one and the lowest is a level seven. And you'll see my averages listed on the slides, which were actually the same for all four different categories, which was interesting. So the first topic area was family-centered care. And it was a medium level of evidence of six, uh, which is a qualitative or descriptive study. So the focus was on finding ways to include family-centered care as a theoretical framework. And they found that it should really include liberal visitation, including additional family members, and promoting pri privacy whenever possible. They also, throughout these studies, raised the fact that a lot of the times the nursing staff has a lot of concerns when a hospital or medical system is transitioning to using family-centered care as a theoretical framework, mostly due to um, the increased privacy measures, which are great for the family but can sometimes cause additional stress for the nurses, especially as the transition is starting out. So that was interesting to note. The second category is the parents' lived experiences, and it was also a level of evidence of six. And this one I found really, really interesting because the mothers were the focus of the vast majority of the studies, and, and there just wasn't a lot of research on fathers. And all the studies that I did find that were done on fathers were foreign studies. Um, there weren't, wasn't a single U.S.-based study on it. And so that's clearly an area that I was able to identify that we need some more research on. And I thought perhaps it might be due to differences in um, paternity leave policies in some of the European countries particularly. And I listed for you the important parent needs that were identified. They're fairly easy um, to understand. But I did want to mention that with consistency, what I mean by that is that a lot of different uh, disciplines within the hospital were saying different things to the same parents. And so parents often felt confused and they didn't understand fully which direction things were coming from. And they just wanted to make sure that everyone was telling them the same thing 
uh, so that they really understood what was going on with their child. The third category is nursing interventions. And the big thing that came out of this one is that nurses often thought that they were being more supportive than parents found them to be. And, <laughs> um, and I think that that is part of just the whole personal professional relationship balancing act that I listed there. Um, and that there are definitely ways that you can bring these two different ideas closer together. And a lot of them relate to just having really good communication, being very respectful and inclusive of the parents. And lastly, I had a lot of case studies that I looked at. And they're hard to summarize as a group just because they are so different. But I did want to include them in my um, review of the literature because they can enlighten what I'm looking at in different specific cases. A lot of them may not be easily generalizable, but because there is a lot of diversity in the NICU experience, uh, they just gave me better background. All right. So from this, I came up with some of the key concepts that I was looking at when I was formulating my evidence-based practices. And they are that it's an extremely emotional experience, but it's very individual, and the parents need to be treated individually, even within the couple, if they are together, um, and also within the whole process, because it'll evolve as their child's situation changes. And they also found that screening for post-traumatic stress disorder and depression can have really positive outcomes as those are statistically shown to be higher. And that's not something that a lot of NICUs right now have um, published that they're doing. So that was really interesting. And also encouragingly, it found that there are many educational interventions that can reduce the stress of the parents. And as I mentioned before, the fact that they are a relatively low level of evidence um, shows that there's a need for comprehensive guidelines and for randomized trials although randomized trials are obviously much harder to do in a medical setting as you're dealing with your people, um, and it's very sensitive. So then I went to transition from what I was finding in the literature to actual practices that could be utilized by possible NICUs. And so what I was able to do is I developed 10 practices um, for the nursing staff from the literature, and then I contacted NICUs from around the country and requested a copy of any policies that they found relevant related to parental involvement, and I compared these to the practices that I came up with. So these are my 10 practices. Um, I'll go through them really quickly. The first is a commitment to family-centered care-based framework um, that's actually enshrined in the policy, um, because it's one thing if a lot of the nursing staff or even if nursing leadership says, oh yeah, family-centered care is a great thing, and it's entirely different to have it actually being their official policy. And then the second would be to have specific privacy policies. And as I mentioned when I was initially talking about family-centered care, there's a big move for single-family rooms. And that may not be possible for all healthcare systems, but even just having official ways of maintaining privacy and really advocating for patients in that way is crucial. The third is having really liberal 24-hour visitation policies. Uh, that are open to not only the biological parents or adoptive parents of the infant, but to um, other family members that they deem appropriate, as families do come in all different shapes and sizes. And then the fourth is policies regarding the method and timing of communication, which I found really interesting as it was not something I would have thought of, but a lot of the parent studies talked about how when they got a phone call from the NICU, they were never sure is everything okay? Are they calling for an update? Or is this an emergency? 
Um, and a lot of the times parents felt that communication came at them in random ways they weren't necessarily mentally prepared for. And this, again, is something that didn't seem like a lot of hospital systems had adapted or had adopted um, through the research. And the fifth is, as I mentioned, having stress and depression screenings. The sixth practice is um, having a really comprehensive tour and introduction to the NICU that isn't all verbal, but is also having physical copies of things that they can take home because it is a lot to process. Um, but if parents don't get that initial orientation to the unit, a lot of the times they feel like they're intruding onto the space and that they aren't really supposed to be there. And so it creates a disconnect for them that makes bonding even harder. And the seventh is having at least the option of referral to peer and professional resources. Peer could look at something such as um, parents of NICU graduates who are willing to provide support and additional guidance or just even lend a listening ear uh, to parents. And it's one thing to have these available and it's another thing to mandate them and I just wanted to make it clear that I'm not recommending that they force people to go to any kind of a support group, but having it as an option um, can be really great. And then a method of including parents into patient rounds where they can communicate with the entire team. It's not always possible given that NICUs, as I showed in the picture earlier, a lot of the times they're open bay and there are many infants um, in one area and for privacy purposes it may not be possible to have them all, um, all in there at the same time talking about everybody's kid. But if, as long as there's a way for them to see the whole team and communicate concerns and hear what the team's saying as a unit, that can be very helpful for parents. And then, as I mentioned, parent education opportunities is really important, particularly related to what equipment is surrounding their child. What is it doing? What are all these tubes for? Where do they go? And then a, a lot of parents are really concerned about pain management for these infants, and those were identified as areas that education can be really helpful in. And lastly, allowing patient, parents to participate in their infant's care as much as is possible. Initially, that may not be very much, but especially throughout the hospitalization, really integrating the parents is really crucial for their well-being and for the bonding with their child. So then I was able to have policies sent to me by three different NICUs, and what I did is I just created a chart. These are the 10 policy or practices, I'm sorry, that I just went through. Um, and then there's X's for any time <coughs> that one of the NICUs met that practice in their policies. And so as you can see, the areas that uh, most of the NICUs that I looked at had policies were related to privacy, visitation, and par parent education and parent integration into the unit. And the areas that were lacking in the three NICUs that I looked at um, were policies regarding communication and stress and depression screenings. And there also wasn't always um, a comprehensive par parent orientation with resource referral. <coughs> so my recommendations going forward are that NICUs that don't have a single unified policy do create one um, in order to signify their commitment to having these uh, throughout the, their health system and that the use of these or other similar evidence-based practices be explored further in research. And it would be ideal to have research that includes surveys or um, interviews with NICU staff, seeing how realistic they find these to be implementing into their unit. And then further research to identify what the barriers are, because not all of these are currently in practice. So is it a matter of a lack of knowledge, or is it a matter of something 
more complicated that would be harder to resolve. There are many potential barriers to including it. As I mentioned, lack of knowledge is one. Just simply the fact that a lot of hospital systems don't have one policy. That can make it more complicated for the nursing staff as well as other staff on the unit to really interpret what the cultural values of the institution are and how that translates to parental involvement. And lastly, there can also be a lack of institutional support. And if the institution as a whole isn't behind a transition to using a family-centered care framework, it can be very difficult for nurses on a unit to make a difference. And then as I mentioned, there are some limitations. I was only able to obtain guidelines from three different NICUs. And I only reviewed policies that the NICU sent because they thought that they would be relevant based on what I had told them. So it's possible that uh, there are policies that exist that weren't forwarded because they were buried in something else that didn't seem relevant. And also, all three of the NICUs that I looked at were big urban ones. They're from around the country, but there is a huge difference in what's going on in a large medical center than what's going on in a rural, um, smaller NICU. And so it would be really interesting to see how those NICUs are faring in terms of using evidence-based practice guidelines. So from my study, I, or from my thesis, I was able to conclude that there is enough research available on ways to include parents in the NICU that you can, can formulate these comprehensive guide practices, but they're not yet evident in all the procedures that I, was review I reviewed. And that there are a lot of different areas for ongoing research in this area, either for myself or for other people to explore. So I think it's a very exciting, ongoing topic. Does anyone have any questions? Physical privacy. Physical, physical yeah. privacy. How does that happen? And how would you, you know, how does anyone evaluate whether that's present or absent or, you know, like? Yeah. Well, it, from all the studies that I looked at, uh, there seem to be a wide variation. There are some NICUs. Um, it's particularly popular in Scandinavia to have transitioned to single family rooms. So it's either the solo infant or if there's multiples they're in a room together and that's that family's room and so then it's much more like the traditional um, modern hospital room where it's either you or just you and a roommate and that provides a lot more privacy and so that's easier to see yeah. but um, in America it's still very, very common to have these open bay NICUs or to have pods of smaller groups of four to five infants um, in a section and then it is a lot harder. Sometimes NICUs have gotten around that um, in my understanding by having side rooms where they can go for meetings or more private areas that are devoted specifically to more critically ill children. Um, they try to do a lot with screening, particularly if mothers are breastfeeding. That's very common. You'll see in NICUs are screened off areas. Um, but it is an ongoing issue and there, I don't think that it's really been successfully resolved in an open bay format. I think it's an ongoing topic of conversation. And you asked um, how would one evaluate that and in my opinion, I would say that you, you have to evaluate it by asking the parents how they feel their privacy is being upheld because um, as nursing or medical staff, our interpretations of privacy are often entirely different. <laughs> so 
I think that you really, that has to be a conversation that goes on with the hospital or healthcare system and their patient families. In your work, now, maybe you said this and you missed it, but did you consider the difference in the responses of parents of, uh, of patients who are there for the long term versus short term patients in the NICU? Okay. Um, I actually didn't do anything specifically with that in my thesis, although that makes complete sense that there are likely many differences. Some of the studies I looked at did track, and particularly the ones that were specifically looking at parental depression and PTSD scores, they did track how those differed um, in pa parents whose child was in the NICU for multiple months as opposed to parents who had a relatively short duration of stay. Um, but I specifically did not go into that. That is a really interesting area though. All right, great, thank you so much. So for our next speaker, uh, I'd like just uh, to bring up uh, Dr. Joe, right? To do the introduction. Oh, okay. And uh, I was very honored to introduce and uh, Jerisa's options here. And I have known and uh, Jerisa and uh, since she was a high school student when she first time visited Villanova. And uh, I still remember the question I asked her. I said, where did you learn Chinese? She told me that she taught herself Chinese. And her first book, was Chinese for dummies. <laughs> I have known many people who have taught themselves something. And even I even taught myself English too. But, and uh, I was deeply impressed by Jerisa's confidence and persistence, which is a key guiding her to the success. Jerisa told me way back then she was going to study at Beijing University, that she was going to speak a French Chinese and uh, one day become a Chinese specialist. I looked at this 17 years old young lady and uh, truly admired her enthusiasm and her courage to say that today. And as she's going to graduate from Villanova, and has been selected as a Philby Scholar for 2014. I more than ever admire her courage to realize what she promised me. Jerisa has received a, and a very competitive scholarship and went to Beijing University. Beijing University is the number one university in China, twice. And she speaks French Chinese and now and will enroll into Ohio University to continue pursue her dream. And uh, Jerisa is such a special student. When she sets goal, she will definitely try her best to get it. She is determined, enthusiastic, and uh, sincere. When Jerisa decided on her paper thesis, I was excited but worried because I knew it was such a complicated 
and a controversial topic and issue, and it will be a tough challenge for an undergraduate student. However, her paper, Understanding Bureaucratic Politics and the Oranges of the Greater Leap Forward, proved that she has become a very promising young scholar with her excellent writing and a unique perspective. Her paper, like most excellent papers, is based on careful analysis, close examination of the field, and a sharp critical eyes. However, Jerisa's paper goes beyond that. Her confront, confronted and challenged a clear about the Chinese political issues and point out that the political issues in modern China are actually rooted in the traditional soil of Chinese culture. This project was bold and exciting, but also unique and original. Teresa, you did a wonderful job. Congratulations. <laughs> I just thanked her for that wonderful introduction. It makes me seem way cooler than I actually am. <laughs> um, thank you all for being here today, and thank you for inviting me to come here and speak. I'll try hard not to ramble at you for too long. Okay, so jumping right into it, my paper topic is Understanding Bureaucratic Politics and the Origins of the Great Leap Forward. So just to tell you a little bit about what I'm talking about today, um, this paper has two purposes. Not only are we going to talk about some of the institutional origins of the Great Leap Forward policy, I mean talking about where it came from, but we're also going to illuminate the critical need what I think is a critical need to reconstruct bureaucratic political theory in the Chinese context, which is something that we haven't seen yet. So just to give you a little bit of background, bureaucratic political theory fundamentally points to the notion that policy decisions are actually the outcomes of disputes between a government's internal organizations as they fight to gain influence over a policy decision or in general just to garner benefits for their individual organization. So usually that translates into something budgetary. And an example of that in the United States could be a number of things like State Department versus DOD, CIA versus those various other organizations. Um, there's a lot of them. And so what is the use in understanding bureaucratic political theory? Well, there's two fundamental ones. One is that, well, we can better understand how certain policy decisions are made, and we can understand why they turned out the way they did. Um, in most cases, we're usually talking about why they failed. Because <laughs> um, as you'll see um, on the handout I gave you, I've actually listed some of the assumptions of Western bureaucratic political theory, and we'll get into that later, but you can see it's something that uh, it's not something that necessarily makes government more effective. So usually we're talking about understanding why a given policy decision was a failure actually as it was implemented. Um, and another use that uh, Graham Allison highlights for us and even Morton Halperin, 
two authors known for their seminal works in the field of institutional politics, is that we can actually use our understanding of bureaucratic political theory to even better predict how certain organizations, governments, or just really powerful political actors will react to a given policy once it's implemented, or how they'll actually go about making their own policies. So you can see it's something that can potentially be really important to improving our relationships with other countries, and in this case, we're talking specifically about China. Now, just to tell you about the uh, bureaucratic political theory as it's currently defined, Morton Halperin and Graham Allison both used the Cuban Missile Crisis and other US-related international policies and policy decisions to define and refine uh, bureaucratic political theory. So this is a theory that was made in the West by Westerners to be applied to Western politics. Um, so we can apply it to something like the Cuban Missile Crisis, the escalation of the Vietnam War, the invasion of Iraq, the Iranian hostage situation. Um, we can actually apply bureaucratic political theory to actually identify which organizations were at odds with one another and how they were actually fighting over policy and how their dispute actually shaped what the final outcome was. However, um, as, useful, as useful as something like that would be to understanding the Western political landscape, bureaucratic politics defined in this way do not lend themselves to comprehending other environments. And you, you, you've probably guessed it, we're going to talk about the Chinese environment. Because in China, the prevailing dynamics are both esoteric and rooted in complexities both ancient and modern. And so we really need to ask ourselves the question of, what does bureaucratic political theory really look like in the Chinese context? Because what you'll see in the point that I'm making in this paper is that it doesn't look the same in every region. So in order to pose this question and to frame it for you, um, and for the purpose of my paper, I've decided to ask this question in the much smaller context of the Great Leap Forward. It's one of the most influential and important uh, policy decisions to affect China and modern politics. And so just to give you a little background, it's also on the handout that I provided you with. Um, the Great Leap Forward was an economic policy implemented by the Chinese Communist Party, and it was designed to not only transform China's economy, but also to usher China into modernity. It was supposed to make China a more prosperous, a more politically important country. And boy, did it fail. It failed horrifically. Tragedy, catastrophe, and even genocide are words that have been used to describe the Great Leap Forward policy, because more than 30 million Chinese were dead at the end of it. So. Here are the, the two big problems, some of the big problems with the Great Leap Forward policy in practice. One, they took unskilled agricultural workers and they told them to start working in steel production without any former education or experience in the field. Also, land that was being used for agriculture, the land that was being used to feed all of China, had been chopped up and reallocated for the purpose of steel working in industry, and only a very small percentage of arable agricultural land and only a small percentage of farmers were actually responsible for growing the crops that would be responsible for feeding the country. 
So this led to massive crop failure because crops were being crowded into plots that were too small for the crops to even grow. And we didn't have enough people working them. And whatever meager crops they did actually manage to harvest were actually taken by the government and used to pay back the Soviet Union because they had just left China uh, after the Sino-Soviet split. So these were all problems that led to the catastrophe of the Great Leap Forward. And now, a lot of this policy is attributed to Mao Zedong, traditionally, in the field and by scholars who are looking at this, at this event. They say that Mao Zedong not only planned and developed the policy, but he's also responsible for implementing it. However, this point is actually highly disputable. Hence the debate. So there is an ongoing debate, or maybe not so ongoing, I think it finally fizzed out. But for nearly three decades, there was a series of essays and books and articles all centered on the debate of whether bureaucratic politics played a significant causal factor in the development, planning, and implementation of the Great Leap Forward. So as I just mentioned briefly, the traditional Maoist interpretation to this question is that, well, Mao Zedong did it. He planned it. He, he launched it. It was his project. However, David M. Bachman, a professor at the University of Washington in Seattle, has a very radical approach to answering this question. And he's basically asserting that it's bureaucratic politics that's responsible for the Great Leap Forward policy, or largely responsible for it. So he actually identifies two coalitions, the Financial Coalition and the Heavy Industry and Planning Coalition, um, that were engaged for a long time in a dispute in the years leading up to the development of the policy. And he says it's actually the outcome of this dispute that shaped the proposal and the policy for the Great Leap Forward. And that's, and that's why it happened. So that's the debate. However, uh, one of the uh, significant components that this debate misses is an explicit definition for bureaucratic politics. In 30 years of writing essays and books and journals, there's not one time a defined meaning for bureaucratic politics. We don't see it. So what I actually had to do to figure out what the heck these guys were fussing about is I had to look through their arguments and I had to look through all of their books and their essays and so I identified what the two points of contention that they keep coming back to in all of their work. Probably the, the two heaviest points of contention in this entire dispute. One, the role of Mao Zedong. And two, the definition of coalition interest. So, first, the role of Mao Zedong. Did he act unilaterally? Or did the bureaucracy or the coalitions, at this, you know, they're the same thing, did they affect the way that the policy was formed? That's one question that they ask. Two, so the coalitions in the middle of their big dispute over how the Great Leap Forward policy should be implemented and created, they self-destructed. <laughs> they actually abandoned their original policy proposals and self-destructed, and they adopted Mao's vision for the Great Leap Forward because he did have one. And he criticized the bureaucracies, and he really, really pushed them to create a policy that was more in line with what he envisioned for how the Great Leap should happen. And so they did that. Both organizations abandoned their policy proposals, their initial policy proposals, and they adopted plans that were more uh, attuned with what Mao Zedong wanted. And 
as a result, their own bureaucracies, their own organizations lost money and obviously influence. So why were they, or, so why were they arguing for 30 years? If you look at the assumptions of Western bureaucratic political theory that I've outlined for you, I mean, this doesn't happen in Western bureaucratic politics. States are unitary actors. So if Mao acted alone, which eventually it was established that Mao acted alone for the most part, then how could bureaucratic politics, according to that sheet that I gave you, have occurred? It didn't. Okay, and organizations are resistant to change. Well, I'd say that doing a complete 180 and then self-destructing in the middle is kind of opposite to that. So what are these guys arguing about? The problem is that they don't have a definition for bureaucratic political theory that applies to the Chinese context. So if you will refer to the next step down on the handout I gave you, I've outlined like very skinfully, really, um, some of the influences on Chinese bureaucracy. So let's consider a few things. First, the mandate of heaven. China, historically, has been headed by a unilaterally acting head of state. And we're talking the dynastic period. However, it has the oldest bureaucracy on the planet. And let's establish something here. If there is a bureaucracy, there is definitely going to be bureaucratic politics. So now we just have to identify what it looks like. So first, mandate of heaven. We have a unilaterally acting head of state and obviously a bureaucracy that works under that head of state. Now traditionally, this bureaucracy has been designed to function in a way that makes itself efficient, yet responsible to this head of state. So the head of state being heaven appointed, being the human expression of the heaven's will for how the country should be ruled, is not subordinate to the bureaucracy, it's the other way around. So the bureaucracies, even if they had policy proposals, they would make those proposals, and it was up to the emperor in the dynastic period in imperial China to decide on those policies. And those were decisions that held up. However, in the Ming Dynasty, we saw Emperor Wan Li abdicate the throne for 15 years, and the bureaucracy functioned on its own, flawlessly almost, without the emperor on his seat. So it's kind of a contradiction how we can have a, a unilaterally acting leader with a fully functioning bureaucracy and body of offices designed to support him. So the next thing we have to look at is Confucianism. There are a lot of principles within Confucianism that can explain not only just the Chinese political landscape in general, but specifically the actions that the coalitions took during the Great Leap Forward. So let's look at them. The doctrine of the gold mean is one that I, I outlined. And then there's other principles that dictate personal, familial, and political relationships in Chinese politics. And specifically, some of those principles include things like Li, which is kind of the principle of ritual. Um, you are to adhere to societal norms, traditions, customs, etiquette. Those things are important. And these principles are not only important just for political and societal life, these are important principles that you adhere to to be a good contributing member of Chinese society. 
and these principles are important even today. So there's li. Next there's xiao, which is like fil filial piety. Traditionally, it's understood as love of parents or parents' love of their children, love of elders. But this also translates into things like love of your state and loyalty to your state. And there's also cheng, which is loyalty to your state. And that's probably one of the most important ones here to consider. And then next, something really interesting that you want to consider is the principle of yi, righteousness. Not only is it understood as the ability to be able to discern right from wrong, it's acting on an action. It's taking an action for the single purpose of the fact that it's the right thing to do, regardless of the consequences of that action. So now let's consider what the coalitions did. Does it make sense? It does. Um, so these are the things that we have to consider when we're reconstructing the events that led up to the Great Leap Forward policy. They don't make sense in the Western context. But if we consider everything that I just said and the influences on modern Chinese bureaucracy rooted in its history, well, these actions start to make a lot more sense. So I won't go through all of them now, but what I did in my paper is I was actually able to create a preliminary framework, or at least suggestions for the creation of a preliminary framework. I mean, that's how far behind in the process we are. Um, we're really just asking a question here and pointing out a need to do this. But what I would suggest you know, we consider in creating a pre preliminary framework for the construction of a Chinese, a fully vetted Chinese bureaucratic political theory is the following. One, states are not unitary actors. There is a bureaucracy and there's a really powerful political actor acting as the head of state. Traditionally, that would have been a unilaterally acting leader. Next, it's the norm to have a unilaterally acting head of state. Obviously, these are things that I've gathered from ancient Chinese bureaucracy. So in application, they change a little bit in how they apply to modern, modern Chinese politics. But the head of state is always going to be the most powerful political actor in the Chinese political landscape. That's really important to understand. OK, so next. Many of the interactions between government bureaucracies, and this includes their powerful head of state. How many times can I say powerful head of state in an hour? OK. Um, their actions and their relationships are all dictated by Confucian principles that govern personal, societal, familial, and political life. These are how these relationships are actually able to function. This is why you can have a bureaucracy headed by a singularly powerful individual. Okay, next. Policy proposals are heavily influenced by government bureaucracies. And those policies and those proposals are actually decided upon by the head of state. So that's actually what ended up happening at the end of the Great Leap Forward planning process. The policies, uh, the policies that Mao actually implemented were the policies created by his organizations. And basically, he took those policies and he implemented them the way that he wanted to. Um, but they were, based on, they were based on the work of the, bureauc the bureaucracies and their dispute. Next, policy decisions are not always rational. So we can come back to that point and the first point I made and relate this back to bureaucratic politics in the West. So maybe that can be the one constant between bureaucratic politics and bureaucratic political theory from context to context. So 
Obviously, there are a lot of questions that still remain to be explored for the future. Um, we're talking about actually the method by which we're actually able to create a fully vetted Chinese bureaucratic political theory. I mean, the literature review and the digging into the thousands of years of history alone is going to require a lot of consideration in terms of how we do that. Then we need to consider how those things are actually being implemented in modern Chinese, in modern Chinese politics. What do they look like today? Obviously, these things are still here, but we actually have to be able to kind of point out and identify what these things actually translate to now, because they don't look like they did in the Great Leap Forward. So it's not as easy of a study. And something else we have to consider, even outside of the Chinese context, is, well, if we're contextualizing for China, we should probably be contextualizing for everywhere else. Because here's the thing, bureaucratic political theory, like communism, like capitalism, any kind of system that you're using to categorize, to understand, should be understood as a product of its environment. So that means for every culture-based government, every region we're talking about, we should really be looking into the culture and all of the outside influences that shape how bureaucratic politics is done. And that's just something historically we haven't done yet. And it's something that moving forward in the future, if we really consider it, could really improve how we uh, write policies and could increase our effectiveness uh, in, in our international relationships. So if you have questions for me, I'd be happy to take them. Sino-Soviet conflict paper was an earlier arcane version of what yours <laughs> has really just exploded in terms of the transparency. Uh, I can see clearly now the ring is gone. <laughs> the question I have in my special pleading is, could you go back to Dr. Delzell and tell him that my argument that the Soviet Union's effort to maintain international communism and perpetual revolution was never going to be accepted by Mao Zedong, uh, regardless of how many shoes Khrushchev took to hammer after the Cuban. And tell him I deserved better than a B-plus on that paper. I will tell him. Okay. Uh, I, it, it didn't affect the final course, but I, I still, it still bothers me that contemporaries. Secondly, and more to the point here. Uh, what I have heard from you today 
matches without any deviation the call for contextualization within the newest cohort of public intellectuals and academics across the Western Anglo-European of recognizing for the first time in a long time that we are not number one, we are not number one, and your work is the seminal work that we'll be contributing to others that include uh, the president of the American University at Cairo, uh, Lisa Anderson, whose 2003 book opened up this whole question of the exporting of American methodologies to every nation, states, university in the whole globe, because where did they peoples get educated? Anglo-European <laughs> universities where they got the paradigms. So my question here is now about you and how quickly can you fix it? <laughs> and then I'm going to be done. <laughs> Um, well, uh, obviously it's not going to happen very quickly. I mean, it's my next step to expand on this topic a lot. Um, but this is also an invitation for other scholars in the field to kind of pick up where I've left off and to help me out. So uh, in terms of a timeline, it, it'll happen as fast as everybody works on it. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, that just, just absolutely <laughs> marvelous. Thank you. Thank you. Other questions? <coughs> Uh, you had the dates of the, for the Great Leap Forward, I believe it was 1958 to 1963 at the beginning there. Yes. Uh, my question was, uh, you talked about the, imp the change in direction um, by the bureaucratic uh, entities and um, the implosion. And I was wondering, did that happen before 1958? And, and, and so that the, that period, the actual Great Leap Forward was always directed by what Mao Zedong eventually dictated, or was it a, a sort of a course correction, so to speak, that he brought in, say, midway through that period on the, on the Great Leap? Like, was he seeing that it was being unsuccessful and thought he was trying to improve it, or was it the, an, an anticipatory kind of uh, correction on his part? Right. Well, okay, so let's talk about the dispute that I, I highlighted earlier. The dispute between the financial and heavy industry planning coalitions essentially resulted in the move towards heavy industry and planning. So that coalition actually kind of went on on that dispute. So that's actually the fundamental basis for how the Great Leap Forward policy was actually beginning to be implemented in 1958. However, after we saw almost immediately that it was going to be a failure um, and the coalitions were still battling it out in terms of how it should be fixed, that's when Mao Zedong took the policy and made it his own. So it kind of all happened right at the beginning together, and almost it was kind of meant to be a course direction change, but the entire thing was a failure from the beginning, and um, we actually saw the bureaucracy at one point actually just continue with its path of destruction. And a lot of this happened not intentionally, because there was a lot of false reporting that happened during the Great Leap Forward. Uh, the farmers were reporting higher agricultural yields than they actually had. Um, industrial workers, farmers who were supposed to be industrial workers, were actually taking metal uh, tools and metal works that were actually already made and reporting that they had created them. 
<laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so the course direction didn't really help, and that's how we ended up with as many deaths as we did. One more, the, the, the other side of this. Uh, we, we often speak of uh, particular seminal works that can be scaled up and are generalizable, and that's extremely critical and absolutely the case. What about miniaturization? Can we take your paradigm, your archetype for government bureaucracies and place that with some relative degree of certainty of um, practical, productive results to institutional practices? Of course. Um, well, I okay. guess one thing, <laughs> well, no, this is my fault. I guess one yeah. thing that I neglected to mention is that bureaucratic politics and bureaucratic political theory does not necessarily have to be applied to politics or government. Mm -hmm. um, there was actually an interesting, an interesting dispute between Dannon and Baidu, not Baidu. It was a Chinese water company, a, 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 a foodstuffs company. They had a really nasty dispute. And uh, I actually did a small study of it when I was in China. And um, it's a clear case of bureaucratic politics and uh, the lack of cultural competency. So we can see this at a large scale and we can see it really small. I'm sure we could even find it at the university level. I mean, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we can see bureaucratic politics in a lot of different lights. And I think it would clear up a lot for us. Well, thank you. He needs it for... Oh, oh, that's not fine. Why don't you do that? <laughs> Instructions from Dr. McGonkega to make a few remarks that are applicable and appropriate for both Teresa and Mark. Dr. Keda, as we know, is the director of the Institute for Global Interdisciplinary Studies, GIS. And he has had the very good fortune of attracting and retraining, retaining, no, he's not retrained anybody but me, uh, <laughs> but attracting and retaining excellent young scholars faculty who are clearly invested. And so he regrets his inability to be here today. He is on university business in a climate that is uh, arguably somewhat more palatable than ours being Atlanta, Georgia for a few days, but he's hard at work. And he has asked if I would read. He is a person of few words, so each word has a magnitude that 
is far beyond what we might anticipate until you reflect. Jerissa and Mark, the two of you are representational. You represent the rewards of hard work and persistence. You represent a cohort of students within community who have supported your growth and whose growth you each have contributed immensely. You represent the very best of Villanova University." End quote. I now take the liberty of a few remarks. And to ensure that I am less loquacious than my reputation has caused me to become, I shall read. This is a letter of invitation that I sent to our university president yesterday. I received his reply. He regrets his inability to attend. There is a philosophy colleague who's passing and whose uh, funeral now is today to which he is obliged to attend. But what I said to Father Peter is what I would say to the world. I'm delighted to report that, and this is now for Mark, Jerissa, you can draw this in exactly the same way that we were speaking of scaling up and microcosm down. I'm delighted to report that a remarkable student with deeply humanist and extraordinarily moral intellect, Mr. Mark Bookman, has been selected by the Falvey Scholars Program to represent the best among undergraduate humanities scholars among the class of 2014. I cordially invite you to attend Mark's presentation tomorrow morning. A protege of Dr. Cada, within the Institute for Global Interdisciplinary Study, Mr. Bookman also has found teleology, soteriology, and select Western philosophical traditions of some considerable worth in his existential movements, his living with meanings. If circumstances are congenial for you to attend, you may note how quickly you become interested in reimagining discourse yourself, particularly within the context of Xingong Buddhism and Western epistemologies. You may become interested to learn something of his international course of study in Japan about his plans as a 2014-2015 Fulbright research scholar as recipient of the Benjamin Franklin Fellowship to pursue doctoral study at the University of Pennsylvania 2015-2016, parenthetic note, 
deferred from AY 2014-2015 to permit his Fulbright, Fulbright research year back to Japan. At its inception, the Falvey Scholars Program expressly excluded from consideration students whose uh, honor students exclusively, but it expressly excluded those honor students who had presented at the National Undergraduate Annual Conference and had excluded those students who had advanced to finalist or beyond stage in the nationally competitive scholarship competitions. The program has grown, matured. Today, the Falvey Scholars are selected by a panel to ensure that the very highest standards of scholarship are publicly honored from each of the colleges and from the social science, the humanities, and the natural and math sciences. Also today, a student's prior presentations, of which Mr. Bookman has several, and subsequent competitive awards, to which I've already referred, are considered as additional evidence of the very highest quality of each scholar's credentials. I sincerely hope you find the invitation irresistible. I know you will find the presentation of Mr. Bookman engaging. He began work in my domain as an accidental, not so much, but a student who was not a philosophy major, merely a minor, two whole courses away from the major in philosophy, and hence Dr. Cavallo's attendance earlier, he sensed his regret that he left in order to attend uh, the tribute to Dr. Paparella. But Mr. Bookman enrolled in the capstone course philosophy for philosophy majors that I taught two years ago, last year, whoa, on critical race theory. We had eight students. It was a seminar. Everybody was philosophy major, except Mark. We had eight books to read. We had each book at about 1,000 pages. We read those books, discussed those books before the midterm break. And from the midterm break beyond, it was discussion of work in progress and the multiplicity of cultures that were represented in the very being of the students and the passion, the civic passion, the existential passion appears to have burned into one other dimension of Mr. Bookman because he said afterwards, gee, Dr. Goff, do you think we could keep doing this? And I have had the pleasure of keeping doing this throughout the last two semesters. And the this is now what we are here to hear. May I introduce and have you come forward, Mr. Bookman?
you know me, some of you don't, I'll be more than happy to introduce myself. My name is Mark Buckman, and today I'm going to be speaking to my thesis, uh, a, teleolog a Teleological Approach to Comparative Philosophy, Kukai and Western Thought Traditions. And by the end of today, if you can pronounce Kukai, I'll be happy with that. <laughs> so, <coughs> in the West, we typically use two different philosophical approaches or methodologies as the bedrock of our inquiry when we work forward. Now, the first of these is a correlative approach. It's that which determines that which is like or unlike another approach, another entity in the tradition. This might be something along the lines of, well, communism is somewhat similar to idealism, or we might say that red is kind of like blue, insofar as they're both colors. Uh, additionally, we have an influential or a pedagogical approach. This is one that relies upon the idea that one thing is directly informed or informs another. Uh, Neocontinism, as the name suggests, comes from a pedagogism and so forth. But the problem with these different approaches when we start examining philosophy is they create the inevitable question of, so what? Why should I care as an individual that Kant is kind of like uh, some of the theories that he started on? Why does that really matter to me? How do I go about embedding that in my own life? Uh, as a scholar, as a student in college who's simply studying his way through, how do I go about actually applying the messages that I'm learning in what appears to be, at least superficially, an ivory tower-esque discipline to my own life, to better myself, to achieve my own goals. So to that end, I want to articulate a third approach, one that I sanction, being one of teleology, that is, a study of the ends, uh, and soteriology, a study of the theory of salvation toward the ends that we ultimately strive for. In both of these, there's the idea that we take the conclusions of the influential, we take the conclusions of the correlative, and bring them into our own lives through an experiential sanctioning that ultimately allows for the somatic expression, the bodily living, of the very philosophies that we come to study. So how is this accomplished? By what systems is this accomplished? And for what ends? What are our ends? And how do we go about proceeding? All of this relies upon several contingent factors. Perhaps the most, uh, the most immediate being the understandings of logics, the understanding of systems that we go about using to make sense of the everyday reality around us. And what is that reality? And how do we go about perceiving that reality? Well, to take the first step, we jump into Western logic. And traditionally, we might argue that Western logic relies upon two key principles. A law of contradiction, which is to state that reality, in reality, nothing can ever simultaneously be itself and not itself. There is some discrepancy there. There is, you cannot have paradox in this sense. There's also a principle of identity, which is to state, which underlies this principle, and is to state that in order to judge an object as being itself and not itself, or something or something else, it has to be at some point observable and static. We have to be able to say that this is comparable or this pedagogical link to something else, and therefore this has its own unique identity. But the truth of the matter is, this understanding of logic, which appears like a commonplace in our society, is in fact entirely Western in origin and doesn't actually hold up when we start moving to Buddhism and Eastern logics. Now certainly, there is an idea of a conventional superficial truth in Buddhist logics as well that mirrors this principle of identity. However, there is also a relative truth which argues that the constant movement, the constant flux of the universe in a sort of pseudo endlessly salvic soteriological machine that is the cosmos around us. So how do we go about making sense of these movements? How do we go about applying these logics? 
what are they used for? Well, we have a concept that I'm going to refer to as semiosis, which is the idea of we have a type of soteriological knowledge, we have a knowledge of the end that we wish to strive for, and we use that knowledge to go about achieving those ends. Indeed, we also have a semiopietus, which is the attitude towards that knowledge, that we might prefer one to another, or we might instead choose to ignore certain types of soteriology. But how do we go about applying these? How do I go about using the knowledge that I've accrued over time, and how do I accrue such knowledge? Indeed, if I don't know the nature of the universe, how can I pretend to know anything? How can I understand the epistemology? So we have the ontology of logic, or the origin of where logic comes from. And the truth of the matter is, it's based upon a presupposed cosmology, it's based upon a presupposed conception of the universe, that once we've established, we still have to perceive it in some way. So I'm going to draw attention to a concept known as hermeneutics, that is, an understanding of textuality, or the ability to study texts in different ways. And text need not necessarily only apply to written text or verbal text. Every communication, every interaction we have can be described in terms of textuality. So Buddhism gives a couple of hermeneutical methodologies um, in general, then I'll speak to you momentarily uh, before delving into the specific contents of my research. So for Buddhism, we have the idea of specialized terminology, in which we might call this jargon. That is the idea that I'm speaking with, very, with terms you don't hear very often. Soteriology, teleology. These terms are used precisely because of the preciseness of their definition. And that they, by virtue of using them, I'm decreasing the ability of, or rather decreasing the likelihood of miscommunication. Furthermore, estrangement effects, relativization of ordinary language, and detailed explanations of the relative nature of reality also allow for an elucidation of a cosmology that is not necessarily defined by static entities. Um, indeed, there are more, but I will skip through them for the sake of brevity. Now, my particular research focuses on a guy, a scholar, Buddhist monk by the name of Kukai, who lived in the early Heian era of Japan. And Shingon Buddhism, which is also known as Mantric Buddhism or Vajrayana. Now, as far as Kukai was concerned, he was, a, again, an esoteric Buddhist scholar who studied Shingon, again, this mantra Buddhism, yeah, and formally founded its school in Japan in 1823. Now, from an early age, Kukai's understanding of Buddhism was not one, of, uh, not one that he learned through an esoteric doctrine. It wasn't a matter of, of receiving textual ordination and understanding uh, sort of a, almost at that time, generalized understanding of how Buddhism was to be treated. His experience of Buddhism was one of meditation, which we could see as an early uprising of the esoteric tradition, which I'll speak to in a moment. Now, Kukai then traveled to China. He received the formal esoteric doctrine, which again, I will be describing momentarily, and returned to Japan to introduce it. Now, Kukai's idea of Buddhism was one of, again, esotericism. That is to say, it did not, it was not contingent upon the external teachings of the Buddha, whether they be linguistic or otherwise, and was instead an understanding of the ultimate esoteric. That is, at some point we must transcend the external teachings that are taught to us and actually realize in our own somatic identity an understanding of the very principles that we've come to hear about in some form. There is a degradation between the language I use, the teachings I uncover, and how I go about understanding the actual meaning of those teachings and how they relate to an absolute cosmology. Now, with that said, certain languages certainly play a role 
or have a more prevalent uh, purpose in understanding discourse. Uh, the, the fact that I'm using English right now allows you to understand me. If I was speaking in Japanese, you probably wouldn't be able to follow me as readily. Professor John might, but. So, with that said, I want to talk a little bit more about this cosmology that I've been describing, because if it's the foundation upon which every, every hermeneutical methodology, every logic, every understanding of reality is based, we have to understand what we are observing here. And I think you'll find, actually, that the Yogacharan uh, cosmology and epistemology, which is the foundation also of Shingon's understanding of reality, is in fact not too dissimilar from our own in terms of how we go about thinking about perception and how we live. So the mind in the Yogacara epistemology is divided into eight essential stages. We have our five sensory consciousness. We have the idea of thought, which is an organization of self-reflection, which is how we go about thinking about our thoughts and actually processing what we perceive, and a storehouse. Now, up until self-consciousness and self-reflection, these appear to be things that we have in the West and often attribute to how we go about perceiving and often, uh, often phenomenological theories. But with the storehouse, that appears to be a, a concept that is rather as apparent to our ears. So I want to speak to that for a moment. Now, the storehouse is, is categorized by linguistic and karmic seeds. These are seeds of language, the way that we communicate, the origins of our language, and karmic or action seeds, the origin of our actions. Additionally, within this realm, we have cognitive or potentialities, the ability to cognate, the ability to think passionately and compassionately stems here. And when we go about thinking about how we perceive reality, we think in terms of the West, we start with the senses, we work back towards thought, we work back towards self-reflection. And then if we even think about this idea of storehouse, we ultimately work our way back there. But there are a good seven lenses in between the storehouse and the external reality that we are perceiving. It's only natural to think there'd be some degradation of meaning and we wouldn't be able to perceive the absolute reality. So what is a Yogacharan semiosis? What is the, what is the Yogacharan goal here? Well, it's to purify those seeds by instead reversing the polarity of this process. We are to think about the seeds as being the origin, working our way out and working our way back in. By ending a process of semiosis, by ending a process of understanding the differentiation between signifier and signified, we actually have a way of purifying the existing seed, stopping their production, and experiencing the absolute quiescence that is true reality. But with that said, I haven't yet spoken about the nature of which reality we're perceiving. What is that nature? Well, according to the Ayogacharan epistemology and the Shingon, which is based upon it, there is the idea of three modalities of the cosmos, known as uh, Sandai in Japanese. We have Taidai, which are the, the constituent elements uh, for the sake of Ayogacharan doctrine. This is earth, water, fire, wind, space, and consciousness. However, in the case of uh, the Western sciences, we might even consider these to be similar to elements. The main um, fact, the main, I suppose, factor that allows us to understand these elements is the fact that they are asemiotic. In other words, they are not yet organized into patterns, and it's only through our cognition of them that we begin to organize them into visual linguistic patterns. So we have the original form, 
we have the semiotic manifestation of how we perceive them, and then we have the operations or manifestation upon them, that is, how we go about interacting with these entities. Now, the universe, according to this cosmology, is an ever-shifting, again, ever-moving, ephemeral organization of these asemiotic elements, where the only thing that changes are our semiotic organizations of them. Everything is essentially eternal, defined by, uh, defined by and identical to everything else. There's no need to negate one thing as being, as being incorrect and affirm something as being correct, when in fact everything may be simultaneously affirmed or ultimately affirmed as being correct mm -hmm. simultaneously in a Western notion of contradiction and paradox. So, as I said earlier, there is a semiotic articulation of reality. There's the idea that there are linguistic elements, there are uh, semiotic elements being visual semiotic elements, there are writing or graphemes or the idea of a visual representation that is two-dimensional, and lastly, there are written texts or those that have been published for our interpretation. And in each case, we perceive differences in them only because we achieve these semiotic orders, which are practical to a certain extent, but are also, in a sense, a failure to understand the reality around us, and thus we see all types of conflict arising from them. So what is the Shingon semiosis? What, what is Shingon attempting to accomplish here? Shingon, again, mantra Buddhism, Vajrayana, is attempting to say, well, if we can control our, semi our semiosis, if we can actually harness the power we have of linguistically organizing reality, then we can effectively control reality and eliminate all types of struggle. We could basically achieve a notion of absolute enlightenment. But to do this, we have to master language. And how do we go about doing that? So what are the stages by which we do that? How do we begin to process a linguistic reality given, well, what we view to be a limitology of language? So Shingon suggests we can do this through mastery of a body, being a semantic existence, a speech, being our verbalized language, and mind being our individual consciousness as we work forward. So, what are these elements put together? They can be embodied as a mandala. A mandala is the idea that we have a visual object that is a sample of the absolute reality insofar as it contains all the asymmetric elements that comprise reality, and in fact, can be interacted with, has certain properties that allow it to be interacted with and mirror our own consciousness, and in fact, be used for the purpose of altering reality. And again, this will be explained in later detail as I move forward. So to give you two ideas of mandala, Shingon in particular relies upon two different mandala, the womb and the Vajra mandala. The womb mandala, you can see it's got pictures of various Buddhas and deities and um, Bodhisattva on it, is a visual representation of reality from the perspective of the non-enlightened. Whereas the Vajra mandala is that which is from the perspective of an enlightened individual. Now, what are some of the characteristics of the mandala, or in this case, the characteristics of reality? Well, it's polymateric. There are different materials here. There are different elements that are being combined in different ways to achieve the reality that we perceive. It's plurilinguistic. We have a multitude of languages that we use to talk about reality, that we use to experience reality. It's pancreas, insofar as, even though there is a soteriological goal in attempting to re-motivate the signs around us, it is, in fact, 
an endlessly salvage process of the universe that we are remotivating. So it exists in all times, at all times. It, is it has an omnicomprehensivity. That is to say, it is a cosmos that contains all of reality by virtue of being part of the body's vision mind. It is polysemic insofar as it is, or it is an organization on many different semantic levels, on many different semiotic orders of reality that we, that we experience and that we have to break down and, and we motivate. It's symbolic insofar as there is a meaning behind it. We are attempting to do something by remotivating these signs. And lastly, it's syncretic insofar as there is redundancy of signs here that we are attempting to remotivate. So again, what are the functions of this visual model? How do we use these actual paintings? We, uh, or tapestries. We use them as liturgical instruments. They're devotional instruments. They're used, again, if we can worship these and understand them, we can begin to understand reality. They're an esoteric encyclopedia of sorts insofar as they convey the relations of every virtue of a bodhisattva or a Buddha to one another visually. They're magical insofar as, well, if I can control them and, and manipulate them as samples and, in fact, synecdotes of all of reality, then I can actually begin to control the reality around me and stop every, something as large as an earthquake from bothering me. And lastly, they're ideologic insofar as they do presuppose a particular semiosis and a semiotis towards it. So the end all semiosis of mandala, what are they used for? The remotivation of reality so as to achieve what we believe to be an intimate, personal contextualization of reality that allows us to engage with it to achieve our own goals. Again, the teleology that I spoke about earlier. So, what stages do we go through in this process? How do we go about existing in this process? And where are we now in this process? Because we, to some extent, might be argued that we are engaging in this constantly if we are doing it unconsciously and non-deliberately. So to that end, there are 10 stages that Kukai and Shindong speaks to. Uh, these are based on the Mahavadotana Tantra that actually begin to describe our progression from the very base to enlightenment. So I'm going to speak to those for a moment. So at the first stage, we have an individual who doesn't pay any attention to moderation, has no law set upon them, and simply act like a goat and bash their head against the wall. <laughs> now, while this sounds like my idea of a Friday night, it's not exactly an enlightened idea. At the second stage, we have the idea that we are, in fact, being uh, controlled, there is in fact an order instilled upon us. This could be a, an individual following the order of their mother, who um, will actually refuse or in some way re refuse to acknowledge the other factors in reality, the other uh, ideologies of reality that could in fact come into conflict with them, and as a result of which they're constantly in a state of karmic damage, that are constantly hurting other people and therefore hurting themselves in some way. At the third stage, we have individuals who basically have an ego. They think, okay, well, I'm going to do this because I believe this to be the right thing to do. I believe my soul will maintain. I believe an idea of an absolute heaven. This is how I'm going to interact towards it. And by virtue of believing in an absolute, they deny the possibility of change. And as I spoke about earlier, in Buddhist logics, there is a problem with that. Uh, because we view that reality can in fact change and be paradoxical. At the fourth stage, we have individuals who deny the existence of a permanent ego, but instead acknowledge psychophysical constituents. 
These individuals might follow an orbital truth. They pull them up in the face of Buddhist tenets, but they haven't yet mastered the 12 books of causation. Those are the causes of karma, causes of uh, reaction and reaction that will sort of damage in the process of becoming well in, entangled in these linguistic uh, fights we have. And at this stage, we have individuals who have mastered this. They have uh, caused a cessation of karma. However, they still don't yet have the ability of helping others, and they're still not compassionate. And as a result, others still suffer from karma. As others suffer from karma, that karma is reflected upon them, and they end up experiencing pain nonetheless. So they're still not in a state of absolute you know, joy and quiescence, or even enlightenment. Now, at the sixth stage, we have individuals who experiences compassion to help others, but they don't even know what they're teaching. Uh, you know, we haven't yet spoken about the nature of mind, the nature of reality. We're simply trying to teach without knowing what we're teaching. And as we could probably guess, that's probably not the most efficacious method of discourse. So coming to the seventh, we have individuals who say, okay, external reality is phantasmagoria. I understand that. Uh, the mind is in some way persisting. I can understand that. So I'm going to teach this. But in reality, our mind itself changes. The way that we think changes. The way that our ideas are conceptualized changes. So this, as well, doesn't appear to be um, a proper mode of enlightened discourse. And indeed, there is no real interpenetration here, which we hit in the eighth stage, which is the idea that object and subject, mind and self, mind and external reality, are in fact interpenetrating and in some ways informing each other. This is the idea that the aforementioned asemiotic elements comprise me and comprise the universe and are constantly shifting between us and embodying us. So I begin to understand reality as being an absolute quiescence and simply the solid motions of the universe. But even at this stage, I haven't yet abandoned the exoteric constructs of reality around me. And indeed, I still am viewing reality as being something that is simply there. I haven't yet engaged myself in it personally. I haven't yet begun to realize my goals. I've simply expressed how I can begin to eliminate conflict elsewhere. So at the ninth stage, we toss aside all these exoteric constructs and all these ideas of, you know, there is a quiescence, this is, this is still something that can exist, and this is still the way that things are. And by tossing that aside, it's like taking a raft over a river, if you will, to use a metaphor from Arjuna where we ultimately achieve the ultimate esoteric. And we finally realize intimately and contextually not only the nature of reality, but how to use it, how to manipulate it, and how to achieve not only a quiescence, but a productive reality. So with that said, how do we move through these stages exactly? How do we go about doing this? You know, certainly these are methods and these are modes of mind, but we haven't yet talked about how to progress through them. So we have one path to enlightenment, which is the idea of Ichimizu Jobutsu, or in this case, mastering one of body, speech, and mind. Because if you master one, it implies that you master the others. Well, mastering the body appears difficult. We don't really technically control our physiology all that much. Mastering the mind appears even more difficult if it's eternal and unchanging. But, but understanding true language, understanding the true representation of reality, does appear to be something that we can grasp that we can grasp upon and work with. So in mastering speech, we have various ideas and various understandings of how we can do it. Um, I'm not going to walk through all the typologies of understanding speech, but let's just say there are 
certain ways that we can go about understanding how we communicate. One of them that I want to focus on is understanding the true meaning of every syllable. If language is, in fact, simply a semiotic ordering of this asymmetric reality, then we can understand the actual meaning behind every syllable. We can understand the actual meaning behind the language we use, which ultimately allows us to remotivate that language and use it in a productive manner. Now, this again comes back to the idea of mantra. You've heard me uh, mention before in terms of mantra Buddhism. Now, many of us know mantra in the West is a phrase we utter that is supposed to have some type of supernatural or even a solid power. That is exactly what mantra means here, but it's the understanding that indeed every phrase can be made into a mantra that is imbued with this soteriologic power, insofar as if we understand its constituent elements, it is made of ordinary language, and we understand that, we can actually use it towards the end of the walk. Um, and here I speak again briefly to the idea of mantra and Durrani. Durrani are the words uttered by the Buddha, they are the idea that are the virtues of the Bodhisattva in memorizing those words. These are, quote unquote, if according to some schools, exoteric understandings that are reality that are the most expedient means of achieving this communication. Now for Shingon, it's actually said that the Dharani, the, the, uh, the capacity to memorize the Buddha's words is in fact beyond that because these words themselves are by virtue of being part of this abnormal, asemiotic, eternal language, a method by which we can go about re-manipulating the mandala, re-manipulating reality to more closely mirror our aim. So I'm going to come back to this notion of esoteric for a minute. What exactly is esoteric about it? What exactly is it that keeps this doctrine from us? Why was it that this doctrine, even though it was uh, the school was formally founded in 823, was not published upon, even in Japan, until 1930? Why is it that there is only two or three books on this in the West? Why is it that this doctrine has never transitioned over? Indeed, it requires a certain amount of training in Buddhism to understand. You have to understand everything I've just explained in far greater detail than I have time to do so. Furthermore, you have to be able to understand that it's not that what is esoteric and kept secret is the secret of enlightenment, some goal that we are attempting to strive towards and achieve and be happy. It is instead methodologies of actualizing the reality that we already have into one that is more closely aligned with that which we wish to seek out. And these methodologies are kept secret because if you were to tell someone you already are you are already enlightened. You already have all of this potential. You already have all of this within you. You just have to wake up and realize it. They're probably not going to understand it without that training, and they're probably going to abuse their power. So to that end, this doctrine was kept secret. But now that we have advances, in, certain advances in semiotics, we've had advances in, in philosophy in the West, and indeed, if I um, had the time in my in the idea in my thesis to walk through strains of philosophy, you know, uh, whether they be Platonic or Nietzschean or uh, Kantian in nature, we can actually show direct parallels with virtually every stage that I've described up until the eighth, and indeed can expand upon these existing philosophies into the ninth and tenth to reimagine Kant, to reimagine Plato, to reimagine Nietzsche. And indeed, uh, in 
Shingo in Japan, what we saw was the existing Buddhist infrastructure at the time of the Nara clergy at the time of the introduction of Shingo was completely revolutionized by this in just the same way we might do to the Western schools of thought. Indeed, the Western schools of thought are seen as being, well, virtuous and, and evident and useful because they are systems by which we may live our lives, but they are systems that can be directly amended, modified in the same way the Buddhist schools of the time were modified by showing how this theory not only encompasses all of those existing theories and indeed treats them as expedient means for realizing its goals, but also allows for you to build upon them and show direct correlation, direct pedagogy, and really synonymy between virtually all existing Western schools of thought. So to that end, I wish to speak to some final thoughts. What can we do with Plato? What can we do with Nietzsche to have them become directly relevant to us? Well, if we think about our own beliefs, if we think about our own cosmology, if we think about that which we describe as being real and visceral, we can actually go about re-motivating these philosophies into a way that makes them of direct relevance and, in fact, gives them a newfound soteriological import that I think will ultimately allow for the betterment of all of mankind. Thank you. probably more pressing question is, so you talk about discourse and obviously in relation to other types of thought, other types of philosophy, and so we go through these steps to reimagine them. How would something like this be able to translate, per se, like into something like religion? Or does it? I would argue that religion, by virtue of being discursive, is in fact um, entirely I would argue more directly with religion than philosophy, for that matter, oh. uh, insofar as the, something that I didn't have time to speak to in the presentation, but I did have time to speak to in the paper, is the idea that these various stages of mind that I've spoken to are, in fact, various religious systems and schools of Buddhism already enshrined within them. For example, uh, again, I speak to the Yogacara. The Yogacara is up until the eighth stage. Uh, the Mahayana is at the sixth stage. There are various schools of Buddhism enshrined here. And similarly, for example, Catholicism and Christianity, which is enshrined um, at various points in various ways. For example, the idea of heaven as described in the third stage, but also the idea of compassion as described in the sixth. These stages are fluid. We move through them back and forth constantly. But it's a matter of realizing how we move through them and then understanding how that relates to our existing soteriology. That's what we have to ask. Okay. And then my next question, which is not necessarily related to that one, is when you were going through the, the ten stages and we reached the ten stage, you told us then we could reach productive reality. Could you just talk briefly about how you're defining productive reality? Sure. I'm I'm defining productive reality here in the sense of it is a reality that is divorced from the idea of conflict, but in fact furthers your uh, furthers a soteriological agenda that is 
not necessarily a idea of the self of enlightenment, not, not necessarily the idea of achieving Buddhahood and never coming back, like you see in the Yogacara thought, but is instead the idea of being able to still interact with the, everyone and everything else personally, somatically, so as to help them work their way through the process. It's the idea of becoming a Bodhisattva versus a Buddha. If I may, two two minute drill in ninety seconds. Number one, I'm delighted that you keep putting different things in your PowerPoint. I need a copy, so that was really cool. Uh, secondly, uh, it appears to me these are two observations and a question. It appears to me that Teresa is asking you this stuff because. What she needs is to understand the person you are describing as either yourself aspiring to and or everybody else who is thinking in those complex ways who find themselves in bureaucratic positions. So as to be able to understand how then one will do the right thing because it's the right thing. Why then? Boom, boom. <laughs> Uh, no, you don't get to talk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can, well, no, you talk better and faster than I do. No, I was so. just saying we had this discussion yesterday. Yeah, okay. Well, well, well that, I, I'm, I'm glad that I'm perceptive at least. Yeah, I'm glad that Joris is giving you a Because okay? <laughs> I was at the last time, I was like, you. So the question really is, your existential movement because once upon a time you were merely going to be engaging in a project where you could point to the more productive ways that are available for cultures to talk to one another across cultures without so much conflict and uh, enmity. And then it turned into, uh, oh, I myself somehow need to become integral to the very discourse that I'm looking at that will permit practical dialogue, productive dialogue without enmity and without uh, continued conflict. Now, I see you have taken it on the road. What is taking it on the road all about with you and this project? Well, I may ask just a simple question. For me, this, again, this started as an academic inquiry. It started as something that I viewed to be esoteric. It was the idea that I want to do the study because I want to see methods of I want to see methods of discourse. I want to focus on various philosophical understandings of reality. But I didn't really understand what I was working with in terms of Shingo. Um, when I went to Japan, uh, as, as, as you remember lovely, um, I started working with this in the original, the original Japanese, I will say, but it's more a read of classical Chinese. Um, but at that point, I wasn't really following because I was translating from 
a Chinese transliteration of Sanskrit, which was then transliterated into Japanese, and I was then translated into English. So I was losing a lot of meaning, and I wasn't really following along, and I had a general idea what I was talking about, but I was lost. As I worked through this project, um, I began to realize this isn't an academic discipline. This isn't exoteric. This is, in fact, the very, the very teleological approach that I'm speaking about came to embody the very way that I viewed my own research. And I actually came to, I don't want to call myself a Shingon Buddhist, but I'm certainly going to say I came to appreciate somatically the values of Shingon Buddhism insofar as a material cosmology, which it essentially is, um, relates to my own Western understanding of reality. And in fact, I would argue my existential world here was the idea of not viewing myself as a Shingon Buddhist, not viewing myself as a, a, a scholar of the Western canon, but instead saying, no, this is something that I can live 24-7 that I can use to re-motivate my own life and make myself happy. Well, thank you, sir. Uh, quite honorable, I believe. Thank you very much, everyone. My pleasure to introduce uh, Noor Sheikh. I was very fortunate almost four years ago uh, to hit the lottery in terms of students. And uh, Noor contacted me and uh, decided to come join my laboratory. And get ready, it's two or three minutes of, we both tend to feel uncomfortable when we're complimented, and you're gonna feel uncomfortable. I'm gonna hide behind you. Yeah, just hide back there, it's okay. <laughs> uh, so uh, Noor was pretty much a superstar from the very beginning, she went to uh, Ben Salem High School, uh, pretty much frothed it out there, and came here to Villanova as a presidential scholar. Uh, I um, know that I can never say anything too mean, because she's a black belt in Taekwondo, and she'll kick my behind if I say something bad. Uh, she is a quadruple major, uh, Arabic, Arabic and Islamic studies, honors, chemistry, and biology. She has judged science fairs. She's participated in science fairs. She has tutored uh, numerous, numerous students in uh, many fields, including uh, chemistry and biology. On top of all of this, she uh, had a summer project at uh, CHOP, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where she performed a whole other set of experiments. And what she's talking about today, honestly, she got in the last three months, I would say. Maybe two months. Two months, yeah. And the last, um, she's <laughs> been in the lab for, for the last three and a half, almost four years, and uh, has performed a number of other projects. So uh, I'm pretty excited to uh, see her presentation. I might be biased. Uh, and uh, uh, Noor is going on to an MD-PhD program at, at Thomas Jefferson University uh, very shortly. And so with that, it is my pleasure to introduce your shape. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Wyckoff. As Dr. Wyckoff said, my name is Noor Sheikh. And today, I'd like to tell you a little bit about my thesis project, which involves using fluorescent markers and flow cytometry to measure selective pressures in yeast. So first, why do we use yeast? Well, when you look at the image above, a little bit blue, but image above, they don't really seem like much, do they? But yeast aren't just globs. 
They're actually unicellular fungi, and they make an excellent eukaryotic model system. In fact, the yeast pictured above is budding yeast, also known as bread yeast, Saccharomyces cerevisiae. So this is the yeast that most people talk about when they say the word yeast. It was the first eukaryotic genome to be sequenced back in 1996. And there are many libraries of its fluorescently tagged genes, and along with the short generation time, this makes it highly amenable to genetic and biochemical methods. And though we don't use these in our lab, these two hybrid screens can be used to study protein-protein interactions. So these are small, but extremely versatile and amazing tools to study biology. Specifically, I study two species in my project, once again, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, bread yeast, budding yeast, and another strain, Canada glabrata. Canada glabrata is a human commensal which was recently found to be pathogenic in immunocompromised individuals. Now, when we look evolutionarily at their last common ancestor, it's somewhere between 5 to 10 million years ago, which I know may sound like a lot, but evolutionarily speaking, they're actually pretty closely related. So I'm working with these two relatively closely related bee species studying the Thai pathway. Thai is for thymine, THIA thymine, vitamin B1, not THY thymine, the nitrogenous base in DNA. And here's what thymine looks like. I have two subunits. Thymine, is com thymine consists of a bluish pyrimidine subunit, I colored them blue, and a green thiazole subunit. These two moieties come together to give us vitamin B1. All organisms need thymine, but especially in animals and mammals like us, we can't make our own thymine. And when we have deficiency of thymine, we get neural disorders such as Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome and beriberi. So we need our thymine. But actually, we don't use thymine as it's presented here. For the most part, we use a form called TPP, thymine pyrophosphate. So that's thymine with two phosphate groups stuck on. And that's used as a cofactor in many enzymes. So overall, thymine is important as it gives us TPP for metabolism. So let's pretend you're a yeast cell. You're Saccharomyces cerevisiae, an individual budding yeast. And you need thymine, right? You want to grow and develop normally. So what do you do? You don't have any. Wait, there's some thymine outside. So what you can do is you can bring that thymine in. For those interested, I have the protein names boxed in. But not only can you bring thymine in, you can bring things similar to thymine in too, such as thymine phosphate, TP, and thymine pyrophosphate. Now maybe you're in a condition which doesn't have thymine, TP, or TPP. What do you do? Well, if you are a human, you're out of luck. You can't make your own thymine. But remember, you're a yeast cell for these imaginative purposes, and you can make your own thymine. So if you recall, thymine has two subunits, right? So one arm is used to make the HMP, or pyrimidine subunit, and another arm is used to make the HET, or thiazole subunit. These two are condensed, and boom, we get some more thymine. But once again, thymine is not what our cells really need. They need TPP. So thymine is converted into TPP. You're a nice, happy yeast cell. You can grow normally. Now let's compare this pathway to that in Canada glabrata, the pathogenic strain. There are many, many similarities and a lot of overlap between these two pathways. And this isn't surprising since they are closely related evolutionarily. But there's one key difference I'd like to point out. That's right here. Canada glabrata is missing elements in the pyrimidine or HMP subunit synthesis. And therefore, I would like to study, and I'm investigating, the evolutionary ramifications of the Thai pathways rewiring between these two species. Which leads me to my hypotheses. First, we believe 
that if Canada Cobrada, Q Cobrada is competed against S. cerviciae. And by competed against, what I mean is that I'll be growing both of these strains in the same culture tube. If they're competed against each other in high timing conditions, then C. quadrata will win. On the other hand, since C. quadrata is missing part of the HMP moieties synthesis, when these two are competed in media lagging timing, we believe that a service A will win. One second. Need hydration. These are the methods I used to test my hypotheses. First, I created my strains through PCR and yeast transformation. Then I tested these through competition assays, which were tracked through flow cytometry. And I'll break these down further. The way a competition assay works in general is you mix equal amounts of different strains in the same medium and see which strain is better adapted to that particular medium. Specifically, the two strains I'm using, I have one that expresses yellow fluorescein protein, or YFP, and another that's untagged. And using flow cytometry, I can distinguish between these two strains. In general, I have one overall competition, Canada Cobrata versus Saccharomyces cerevisiae. But I have a few subsets of these competitions. First, I have Canada Cobrata competed against cerevisiae, and cerevisiae is the strain that's expressing YFP, or yellow fluorescent protein. We don't believe that YFP should influence the competition, but who knows, it might. So therefore, I created a reciprocal competition. And in this case, Fabrata is tagged with YFP, and Cervicier is the untagged string. You might notice in the parentheses, we see a change over there. So the manner in which I made Corbata fluorescent was taking the gene and transforming the gene for YFP into the Euro locus of Corbata. Euro is for uracil, and it's needed for growth as well. Now, Euro plus for Corbata was originally a uracil prototrope which means that it can grow even in medium that does not have uracil in it. Eura minus, which is the new strain of Corbata I had, means that Corbata requires uracil provided to it in order for it to grow. Again, we don't believe this should influence the competitions because regardless of timing, I will provide uracil to the strains, but again, it might. So I have a third set of competitions in which, once again, I have service A, which is tagged with YFP, and the strain of Corbata, that's a uracil oxytrope. But overall, all of these are competing Cervicier against Corbata in high and no timing conditions, and they'll be tracked via flow cytometry. Let me further break down how I did a competition assay. First, I would grow my two strains overnight in high timing media so they would be nice and happy the next day. And then using optical densities, or ODs, I would calculate equal cell numbers for each strain. And if I did my math correctly, hopefully, then I'll pipette in equal cell numbers into the same culture tube. And if I pipette it correctly, flow cytometry should verify that I have about 50% of the YFP tag strain and 50% of the untagged strain. And over 10 days, I competed these competitions. And maybe flow cytometry shows me something like this. Perhaps, over time, we see a favor towards the YFP tag strain. So what this means is in that particular medium, the strain tag with YFP is out competing or winning the untagged strain. More water. Okay, so here's how flow cytometry generally works. We have a sample passing through, and a laser shines through a sample. There are several different detectors here, but I'll just point out the ones of interest. Not only can flow cytometry determine fluorescence levels, 
but there is another thing called the FS, or forward scatter detector. And this is proportional to the size of the particles. So in our sample, we should hopefully have lots of cells, but there might also be cellular debris. In my actual assays, I don't really want to count the debris. Here is what a typical graph from flow cytometry would look like. And within the red dashed line, I've delineated a gate. And inside this gate are the cells that I want to include in my sample. So outside the gate is debris. We don't care about it. Inside the gate is what I'm measuring. <clears throat> now, before I actually conducted my yeast competitions by placing them in the same culture tube, I did some individual growth curves. So for this, flow cytometry, again, I love flow cytometry, it also helps us determine the number of cells per microliter. So using this, you can track the population change in a given culture tube over time. And I did this for both Cervicier and Corbata wild-type strains in high and no timing media. On the y-axis, I was able to calculate the number of doublings over a 24-hour period. On the x-axis, we have the two strains. In high timing media, I found that Canada Corbata does grow faster than Cervicier. The difference is statistically significant. Additionally, in no timing media, Cervicier grows much faster than Corbata. The difference is also statistically significant. So, so far, these match our hypotheses. And using the growth curves that I generated from when these strings were grown individually, I did some modeling to try to predict what would happen in the actual competition assays. So in this modeling, I assumed a few things. One, that I'm beginning with exactly 50%, 50% Corbata Cervicier, and also, I had anticipated performing dilutions every 24 hours so that the strains never get too saturated, so they'll continue to grow. So I would expect that after every dilution, I see a repetition of the same growth curve that I see. So based on these assumptions, here's the modeling in high timing media. I'm showing percent Corbata on the y-axis, time in hours on the x-axis. Again, assuming Corbata begins at 50%, I could just as easily have shown as Cervicier, but for simplicity purposes, I'm just showing Corbata. So beginning at about 50% Corbata, in high timing, modeling shows that it would take about 18 days for Corbata to constitute 99% of the population. Which again, we believe that in high timing, Corbata would win. The modeling is in line with that. Let's see what happens in no timing media. In no timing media, when Corbata begins at 50%, it very rapidly dies out. So in no timing, modeling predicts that S. cervicii should win after only about five days or so. Okay, so now that you've seen modeling predictions based on when these strains were grown individually, let's see what actually happened in the co-cultured samples. To give you a sense of how I feel, when I'm taking aliquot after aliquot, taking it up to the flow cytometer, here's what it feels like. <laughs> so percent Corbata again on the y-axis, time and hours on the x-axis. Are you ready? This is what it looks like. <laughs> Yay, one. Let's see what the other one. So if you recall, I had three sets of competitions to make sure that YFP would not influence the competition and neither would changing Quadrata from a Eurosol prototroph to an octotroph. And indeed, we see that regardless of the competition, Corbrata very quickly outcompetes S. Cervicier in high timing media. But the intriguing part here, if you remember with modeling, modeling predicted that Corbrata would take 18 days to reach 99%. But in the actual co-culture samples, 
In only about five days, Gabrata hit the 99% mark, which was very interesting, much faster than we had anticipated. But the other point of interest is with this. Once Gabrata hit 99%, modeling said that, well, it should keep going closer and closer to 100%. But in reality, what we saw is Gabrata fixed at 99%, and there was a persistent 1% of the population, which was Saccharomyces cerevisiae. And this was intriguing since we didn't anticipate this through modeling. And to investigate further, if indeed what I saw was cervicea and not just a subpopulation of Gabrata, which had somehow changed the fluorophore, it happens, mutations, they occur. I exploited the leucine differences between these two species. Canada Gabrata, as we use it in the wild type strain, is a leucine prototrope, but Saccharomyces cerevisiae is a leucine oxytrope, which again means that leucine needs to be provided in the media for Saccharomyces cerevisiae to grow normally. This should not affect how the Thai pathway functions because we provide leucine regardless, but this is something I can use to find out if indeed what I'm seeing is cervicier or just a subpopulation of Gabrata. So I took the competitions after the 10 days and transferred them from media that contained leucine into media that lacked leucine. Here's a, here's a flow cytometer graph with a peak on the left, the ginormous peak on the left, being the non-fluorescent Gabrata cells. And the small little group on the right the fluorescent cervicier cells. The black line represents the peaks when they were grown in media with leucine, and the green line is a media lacking leucine. So let's zoom in to that bottom portion right there. Well, when we, can you guys see the different colors, maybe, hopefully? So we see that we, there's only a black line peak for S. cervicier, but there's no corresponding green light peak, which means that when I transferred the cultures from media with leucine to media without leucine, we made cervicea disappear. So indeed, the little peak that we had corresponded to cervicea. Now let's see what happened in media lacking timing. Scobrata began at around 50%. Then some strange things happened. Modeling had predicted that very rapidly, Scobrata would get outcompeted. But what we actually see in the cold culture is for the first few days, there's actually some more Scobrata than cervicea and we see a similar pattern in all three competitions. So what's going on here? Well, we're not quite sure yet. <laughs> but regardless, it, we see that Cervicier takes much, much longer than predicted by modeling to outcompete Vibrata. Because even at the end of the 10 days, Cervicier is about at 80% of the population, versus modeling had predicted that by five days, it should have reached 100. So let's look at the hypotheses again. We have predicted that in these competitions, when Gabrata and Cervicea were competed, that Gabrata would win in high timing media, and we saw that, and Cervicea would win in no timing media. But also, that the winning strain would reach and stay at 100%. This part, the last part we saw, did not really hold out in high timing media, since we had a persistent 1% of Cervicea. Another way to show my data is through fitness coefficients. Fitness coefficients are a way to quantify how well a certain strain or species survives and reproduces in a given condition. And specifically, fitness coefficients range from 0 to 1, 1 being the most fit strain, and 0 being one that essentially dies off, doesn't do anything, it's sad in that environment. I was able to calculate fitness coefficients for both Gravata and Cervicea in high and no timing media when they were grown individually and when they were grown in co-culture. Additionally, when you have populations with multiple strains, fitness coefficients are determined 
with respect to the most fit strain. So in high timing media, the most fit strain is quadrata with a fitness coefficient of 1, and in no timing media, the most fit strain is Servessier, and that has a coefficient of 1. But the really interesting part here is how the fitness coefficients change. So when grown individually, Servessier had a fitness coefficient of around 0.9, which is still pretty high. But in co-culture, it went down to 0.7. Now let's look at what happened to Glorada in no timing media. In no timing media, when Glorada was grown individually, its fitness was only about a 0.3. But when we took Glorada and put it in co-cultured no timing media, its fitness more than doubled. So overall, in co-culture, Glorada seems to have a higher fitness relative to when it's grown individually. So let's revisit the second part of the hypothesis. We believe that Glorada would lose the no timing media because it's missing part of the arm for creating HMP, specifically the Thai 5 family. So to test this part of the hypothesis, we created a strain of Glorada which had SC Thai 5, which expresses the Rissi's Thai 5 in the genome. And using flow cytometry again, I could generate population growth curves. We have number of cells per microliter on the y-axis, time and hours on the x-axis. The greenish-yellow line corresponds to Servisier and how it grew. The turquoise-ish blue line corresponds to the growth of the wild-type Glorbata. As predicted in no timing media, Servisier grows much better than Glorbata does. Now let's see what happens when we have Glorbata expressing type 5. There's that growth curve, right in the middle of the two, which is exactly what we had hoped for, that bringing and putting SC type 5 into Glorbata in no timing conditions enhanced its growth. It's not yet to the level of a servicier, but we wouldn't expect that because there's other elements of the pathway which are also missing between the two. But the mere fact that one gene alone was able to bring back and enhance so much of the growth really fits in with their hypothesis. So in conclusion, we saw in the first hypothesis that both modeling and co-culture, Glabrata outcompeted servicier in high timing media. As per the second hypothesis, in media that lacks timing, Servicier outcompeted Glabrata. And we also saw that the reason for this Servicier winning over Glabrata dealt with Glabrata missing Thai 5 and other elements, but bringing SC Thai 5 into Glabrata enhanced its growth in no timing conditions. But as a consequence, what we find is one of the most interesting ramifications are the differences between co-culture and individually modeled growth. So comparing in this table, modeling predicted that in high timing media, Glorbrata would take 18 days to reach 99%. But in co-culture, this happened in only about five days. And in no timing media, modeling predicted that Servicier would reach 100% in five days. But even after 10 days, Servicier is only at about 80%. So clearly, there appears to be some sort of interaction between these two species in co-culture that we had not anticipated. So one potential future direction is to identify potential metabolites through high-pressure liquid chromatography. Alternatively, we could perform RNA-seq between when these cultures were grown in co-culture as opposed to grown individually. And maybe that will give us a clue as to why Glorbata seems to be more advantageous in co-culture. And finally, I completed both of these strains that were wild-type with, with respect to the Thai pathway. This means that each strain had that species' entire Thai pathway. But we also have strains in our lab that are missing certain elements of the Thai pathway. So that would be interesting if we competed other competitions as well.
And if anybody was upset that you didn't actually get to witness a yeast fight, I hope this makes up for it. <laughs> Well, two things. So one of the interesting things, I showed only one of the competitions, 
and we saw one percent servitude for all of them. But I don't, I haven't found any studies in yeast for the persisters, but I have found them in bacteria. And in bacteria, at least, there are some populations which, when grown in certain antibiotics, they can slow down their growth, and they persist because they slow down their growth compared to the rest of the bacteria. So maybe yeast have that too, but I haven't come across studies that there. This is way out of my area of expertise, but I'm just sitting here wondering how much does, how much effect does the discriminator, the way you set the gating mm -hmm. for looking at the cells, mm -hmm. affect your results? Yes. So I tried a quite a few different gates, mm -hmm. and at most the difference was maybe 5%. Okay. Yes. But I just felt safer having the gate, yes. exactly. Mm -hmm. But the gating did not have a significant influence, thankfully. Yes, I So in Glibrata, it's a 5-5. It doesn't have that mm -hmm. gene. Exactly. So it, there's it, actually a whole family is missing. OK. Mm -hmm. it, um, is it worth doing? It might not be. But, or I wonder if you could speculate on using a Cerevisiae 5-5 mutant and seeing if you see a similar type mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. We were actually considering doing that but the tricky part is, there's actually four genes in the Thai 5 family. Thai 5, Thai 11, Thai 12, and Thai 13. And even one of them is sufficient to convert the precursors into HMP, the primary pyrimidine. So it would be tricky to delete all of those genes, but we are definitely talking about that. Yes, definitely. It seems like the service, you know, the 1% that survived, it'd be interesting to see whether the growth rate of those are different I think that's what I want to do next because the flow cytometer it knows all, it has all of the data on it. <laughs> it's amazing, I love this instrument. And initially for the fitness coefficients, I only calculated the first 24 hours, but I do have the data for the la latter part and I'd look into that. Thank you. Thank you.